Greetings and welcome to the Quest for Wisdom podcast, where we search for nuggets of wisdom from the lives of some truly amazing people. Today's guest is Katerina Parimon. Katerina was a political advisor for different political candidates in Israel, starting with right wing, then moving to center, then left, and finally completing the circle back at right wing. She used her heart and moral compass to try and steer her candidates towards equality and compassion. Outside of politics, she has worked for various public projects and NGOs, including People's Voice, where one million Palestinians and one million Israelis signed a peace initiative to demonstrate that the people do not hate each other nor want war and conflict. She now works as an IT professional and is a stand-up comedian and dancer in her spare time. Today we speak about Israel, Palestine, terrorism, and Katerina's career progression into a political advisor. Katerina is a fascinating human with real-world experience in the politics of a controversial country, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. To find Katerina, please check out the links in the description, and make sure to like and subscribe to the podcast. Welcome, Katerina Parimon, to the 12th episode of the Quest for Wisdom podcast. How does that make you feel? Thank you so much for the warm welcome, first of all. It makes me feel amazing. Well, I'm very happy to have you here. So you are a comedian. You are a human. You are also an ex-political advisor to uh, political parties in Israel. Is that correct? That is very correct. Okay. Um, so I am very, very interested to talk to you. And I know that people I've spoken to are also very interested to get some um, real world uh, insight into what the hell is going on in Israel. Um, because it's, it's a topic that we hear a lot, um, especially in the West, in England, in America. It, it's spoken about all the time, Israel, Palestine, Israel, Palestine, Israel, Palestine. Some people hate on Israel, some people hate on Palestine. And I, for one, feel very confused because Israelis, I think, get a bad name. Um, and when I say that, I'm not saying that bombing people is right or anything. But what I'm saying is that there's plenty of people who are not doing that, who are just ordinary citizens who are just trying to live their life and may not necessarily agree with what their government is doing. So. Can you tell us how did you get into advising for political candidates in Israel? I would actually like to start a bit earlier. Yeah, okay. Before that, early not earlier like. in my life, earlier in your question making. <laughs> my big long question. My big long question, yeah, because what the way you ask this question is exactly portraying the way most Europeans feel about Israel. And they... There is both a hypocrisy, mm -hmm. kind of double standards, and a bias, which is so deep that I don't even know if it's possible to deal with it in our lifetime or mm -hmm. ever. For example, you were saying, and I know that you are, you want to learn about it, you want to hear about it, you are trying to be as unbiased as possible, as very few people also try to be that right or many people try to be educated on the topic and yet you said some people do this some people do that but we know after all israeli might be night people we don't agree with the bombing so you already placed israel as the bombing side mm -hmm. and then palestine as the underdog side right oh no if i was speaking with a palestinian i would also say we don't agree with bombing because both people are doing that 
Okay, then um, it's my bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So bombing is not very nice. Let's just get that on the table in general. Very it's not true. a very nice thing to do. Maybe it's necessary in some cases. Maybe it's not. Who knows? Um, but if you could paint us a little bit of a picture of your your thoughts on it and how you got in how you got into politics. Uh, in fact, my own journey was really not intended. It was all coincidental, and I'm very happy that it happened. I was going to um, I was going to study law in Tel Aviv University, mm -hmm. but my roommate at the time uh, just robbed my apartment, left with all the stuff, including my applications, mm -hmm. which made me. Uh, and, and then, of course, I didn't send it until the very last moment, so it's my fault. But after this robbery, when I went to the uh, to get applications again, uh, I was told that the uh, acceptance the process is just closed. So I went to any place that was uh, still open, which turned out to be the very best place, which mm. is Reichman University. It's very prestigious private college that now is university. And this is the best place to study and to get your network, to get your connections, which I had no idea about at the time. But I'm very happy that unknowingly I got into this environment. And in my second year of studies, I was called by my uh, classmates mm -hmm. who already was working with politics and in uh, different uh, campaigns to work on an election campaign. Ah, so just to pause there for a second, what do you think the education system is like in Israel? Is it free, for example, in university? No, it's not free, but it's not as bad as in the States. Mm -hmm. I haven't been to the States, but from what I hear, yeah. that people keep having student loan debts until they die of few generations. That doesn't happen in Israel. You can mm -hmm. have many uh, programs of scholarships. You can go to colleges which are more expensive, to private college which is more expensive. You can go to university which is not that expensive. It's not free, unfortunately, but it's absolutely possible to work part-time as a whatever young mm -hmm. jobs you do, and to study. Okay. So it's it's accessible for people if they want to go, yes, basically. Yes, definitely, yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Um, so then when you were your your roommate, or yeah, your roommate, and she invited you to come along to, um, to, to work with her or for an interview? Yes, to work with her. Oh, okay. I was against it. I was I kept telling her that I have I have no idea what it's about. I've never done politics. I was I wasn't sure who was the prime minister, and I had no interest in going there. I had only interest to go study law, become a criminal lawyer, get the good guys out of jail, bad guys oh. in jail. You know, this idealistic uh, view. Oh yeah. So you wanted to be like the like the the good lawyer fighting for exactly, justice. Exactly. Exactly. And where do you think your sense of justice came from? Soviet childhood. Soviet childhood? Yes. Oh, where did you grow up? I was born in Ukraine, in the oh. Soviet Union then. I came to Israel when I was a child. And oh. I guess this whole system didn't seem very just at the time. And coming to Israel actually made me realize that it can be different. And it can be different for the better way. What is real democracy? What is a place with laws? How does it look when everything functions to... I, I'm not saying it functions perfectly. We're not Switzerland. Mm. But at least there is law and people follow law and there is a, I mean, there used to be a law. Now we don't know what's going to happen in the next uh, year or so, right? Yeah. So your parents are Ukrainian? Yes. And Ukrainian is your mother tongue? I speak Russian. Oh, you speak Russian. Okay. Yeah. Oh, and then so what? Then you came to Israel and learned Israel when you were younger? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. I arrived middle school. Oh. 
What was that like then arriving there? And why Israel? Because we're Jews. That's the place to go. My grandparents were there. My uncles were there already. And was there was there discrimination in Ukraine for Jews at that time? Yeah, my mom suffered her whole life. She was a very uh, talented musician. Mm. And she couldn't get accepted to conservatorium for five years in a, in a row. They were telling her, we have a quarter for one Jew. And that's not you this year. Oh, shit. So then they just they wanted a better life for you then, basically. And they picked Israel. Because I was... What I find interesting about Israel is that, you know, people talk about... Um, America being, a, you know, a modern country that was founded, I don't know, 300 years ago or whenever it was. Um, probably Americans out there screaming at me, telling me the exact date. I don't know. Sorry. I think it was in the 1700s sometime. Um, but then Israel founded, I think, in 1948, mm-hmm. um, which is crazy because that means it's like 75 years old, yeah. which is nothing. And obviously when you're late to the party in terms of joining a... Uh, starting the country, you get to see what all the other countries have done wrong and you get to try and avoid that. And I found it very interesting. Um, I was reading a book called The Culture Map by Erin Mayer, which is a really cool book. It's about um, this lady. She's a, She basically is, uh, goes into different businesses and helps businesses that have got multicultural people, so multinational companies. She helps them do business like cross country Mm -hmm. or even within the organization so how do you get a japanese company to do business with a german company or like an israeli company to get to do business with a canadian company or something and israel is challenging for a lot of countries in the west to do business with because israel is very horizontal it's one of the most egalitarian societies in the world which i thought was interesting because you don't necessarily think of it being like that because of the troubles and because also of the different religious conflicts and the different tribes within there and you get the orthodox people and there's a lot of crazy different um, opinions and different scales of religion, basically. And so I thought that was interesting that it's very horizontal and I wondered why, if you could think of any reasons why it might be horizontal in that way. And when I say horizontal, I mean that without a vertical hierarchy, so... I am the worker, above me is a manager, above that manager is their manager, and then you have a regional manager, and then you have a um, like a director, and then you have a CEO, and all these, like which is very common in American companies, German companies, um, UK companies and things. But in Israel, from what I understand, it's different to that. Any thoughts? There could be a few reasons for that. I would say it starts with the language. Mm-hmm. In Israel, in Hebrew, you don't have uh, any vu, right? So mm. you don't have, in English, you don't have any tu. I'm just trying to take it now from Spanish, from French because there is no equivalent in English. So Hebrew is a very informal language. You speak to your CEO or you speak to the dean of university the same way you would speak to your classmate. Mm. Sure, you might uh, cut out some words or phrases, but uh, in a structure, you do not have this very formal appeal to somebody. I believe that starts with that, and it continues to Israel, as you said, being a multicultural country. Mm-hmm. When it was established, the idea was to make a melting pot of cultures and to blend them into this one uh, cultural identity that would be sort of rough on the outside, soft and sweet on the inside. Mm-hmm. But it didn't necessarily happen. What happened is the multiculturalism. 
everybody comes from somewhere else. Their parents are from elsewhere. Their grandparents are from elsewhere. Everybody's bringing their traditions, their understanding of worlds, and their ideas and opinions. And of course, it's a very tough region. Mm. And you need to strive. Uh, to strive, you really need to be strong. You need to be with ideas because there is not much to do with agriculture, as you might imagine. So I think both the region and the language together shaped this reality where you have to be strong with your own opinions mm-hmm. and what you want to do. So you can see it both in, as you say, it's more, there are less hierarchy, mm-hmm. much more informal and laid back, but also you can see technology is a, such a growing industry because of that as well. Because you need to, in order to, to come up with a startup, you need to question existing beliefs and existing ways. When you're taught something in university, you have to go and say, this is amazing, but I have another idea and I'm going to pursue it. Mm-hmm. And that's the way you both strive in this region and become a tech uh, nation. Yeah, that's very interesting points. And I think that I think that it's just it's I've always found Judaism and like the Jewish diaspora so fascinating because you have the re- the, re- the religion which unites but then those that those people like you say will grow up in a different culture like you've grown up in um Soviet Union Ukraine then you've gone to Israel maybe you have someone who's grown up in Colombia and then they end up going to Israel and all these people obviously they they share a core part of their identity but then the rest of their culture is totally different because they've grown up with that and like I had an ex- experience which I I'd, I'd never thought of it like this before when I was actually in Colombia I was in a youth hostel and I was heard these people talking and I was like oh are you are you speaking in Hebrew and they said yeah and I was like oh that's really cool I'd never heard people speaking in Hebrew before to each other or Ivrit I suppose um I don't know if it's Hebrew or Ivrit but um and then I was like oh what are you doing tonight and they said they were going to I can't remember what the name of it is but they were going to it was a Friday and they were going to like this meetup of where the other Jews from all around the world who happen to be in Medellin, Colombia, they all just go there and they meet up with each other. And I thought it was like really, at first I thought it was weird because I was like, you know, it's like me going to another country and meeting up it with loads Shabbat, of- It was Shabbat, right? Probably, yeah, Shabbat. Yeah. And then they, they said that they go there and they get like a dinner and people and they chat to all these other people. But I thought it was like, I thought it was weird because we don't have something similar. But then I also thought it was really interesting that- You can go to a pub. Yeah, you can go to a pub, but you'd have and to go talk to, to other Irish people, you know, British, yeah. British people. You know, you could just go to a pub. You also have this tradition every Friday or just every day. Every day, yeah. and you can meet like <laughs> similar-minded people and talk about it. Yeah, but the the difference is that if you go to an Irish pub in Colombia, those people will be Irish from Ireland, probably. Whereas if you go to oh, you the won't Shabbat, have Irish from Colombia, okay? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah Whereas if you go to Shabbat, then yeah. you like the people could be from anywhere, yeah. but they share this identity and they're all meeting in this place. To, yeah, like, that's very unique. This guy is extremely unique yeah. because even, even, like, it, even with with Muslims uh, in Islam, they share um, Fusa, which is the modern standard Arabic, which they learn the Quran in, but then they have their own dialects uh, in their own countries. But I would say that their culture, from what I have seen and understand, I could be totally wrong, but their culture is more similar than Colombia and Ukraine, for example. Um, But you would have the religion that shares the Colombian Jew and the Ukrainian Jew, whereas the Iraqi Muslim and the Moroccan Muslim, 
their cultures might be a little bit different, but not hugely different. So I just think it's super interesting. Um, but that's also, a I'm not a, I'm not an expert on religion, as you might imagine. I do like the Shabbat tradition because it's great. And when I go to Israel, I'm with my parents there. We're going to have the Shabbat dinner. I can just crush any of my friends' Shabbat dinner. It's very common. In Israel, we like to eat. Mm-hmm. And it's very encouraged and generous. Also, like I think it's Jewish thing around the world. Just come there and you'll be fed and you'll have Shabbat prayers. And it'll be, it's a really beautiful moment. I love it a lot. But having said that, there is a huge difference between Jews from uh, European countries and from African countries. Okay. In Israel, you have two institutions for religion. One is for European Jews, which is Ashkenazi, and one for um, Middle Eastern African Jews, which is Sephardi. Ah, so Ashkenazi Jews are, it just means European. Yes. Um, what was the other one? Sephardic. Sephardic. Which is kind of Sephardi, which is Spanish, but it's not really Spanish, it's the rest of it. Ah, okay. Um, and so on the Friday you have the Shabbat, but the, and Shabbat is like Sabbath. Mm-hmm. So we for in Christianity, Sabbath is the Sunday. But then isn't it not from, from Shabbat on Friday until Saturday? Jewish calendar is moon, lunar calendar. Ah. So it goes from sunset to sunset. And Shabbat is say, basically from Friday evening until Saturday evening. So mm. everything opens again in Saturday evening and you can go if you need shopping or whatever you need. But Friday evening is the time that you spend with your friends and family. And by religion, this is the day that you, it needs to be celebrated in order to separate work week where you do business, you do things, it's uh, you're, you're working, you're, you're into some mode. And between the rest, where can you, you have to relax. To the microphone? Yes. Yeah, and between you. when you need to take a rest, relax, think about God or your hobbies, your family, spend time with your family. So this is the day that is the holiest and this holiday is most important. So mm. that's why it's so celebrated so differently. Yeah, and I, I heard that the stricter, well, I suppose you're not supposed to use technology yes. on Shabbat, are you? It's not just technology. You cannot do anything, anything that ignites work, work mm. which includes lighter for a cigarette a button oh. on the elevator, tearing toilet paper in the bathroom. They tear it in advance and leave the light open over the timer. But this is harder, stricter Orthodox Jews. Yeah, because I thought that that was, I think that's such a cool idea. It's such a cool concept that, um, and I've been, I keep saying it to my girlfriend, like, right, once a month, we'll do no technology because I'm always in work mode, always, because I love it. I'm always thinking of like, my job or I'm thinking of my podcast or I'm thinking of like my projects or writing or something. I'm always 100% of the time thinking of that. So it would be like, it would be really challenging for me to not do that. And I spent um, a couple of years ago, I spent a couple of days where I, I did silence days where I just went about doing my normal stuff without speaking and with, without doing anything. And I to try and kind of like emulate a little bit of that to try and like separate and <clears throat> to try and learn how to not need to talk all the time because I used to talk incessantly. Now I'm much calmer overall and I do all my talking during my podcast. Um, but digital detox sounds really great. You should try it. Yeah, not yeah. Not just for one day a month. You can make it every second weekend or something like that. Yeah, we'll, we'll start slow. We'll start slow with one. one jump uh, into it. Yeah, jump into it. Um, Take a week. Go to an island. Yeah, you know, I would love to do that. And at some point, um, maybe this year or at some point, I want to do the... Um, Vipassana, the 10-day silence retreat. 
I've wanted to do it for ages, where you go and all you do for 10 days is meditate. No talking, no writing, no, no technology, no anything. Just meditate and I think do a bit of yoga and stuff in like a retreat. That's like, that's the plan. I really want to do that. because I, I really people... want to meet you the day after you did it. Yeah, I think it'd be life changing. I know a lot of people that have done it. And uh, well, one of my friends, he said it's the best thing he's ever done. Um, and I know another lady that's done it a couple of times. Um, but it's just, it, it's teaching yourself that, it's teaching yourself discipline for one. It's teaching yourself to get out of your head and get into your body and get into just learning to calm yourself down. It's like, it's it's mastery. It's, it's getting used to mastery of your body. And there's actually, um, my favorite Israeli, I would say, Do you, uh, are you familiar with Yuval? I thought no. I was your favorite Israeli. <laughs> I mean, you're you're a Ukrainian Israeli now. I know that I'm Israeli okay. more than Ukrainian. Yeah. Um, but are you familiar with Yuval Noah Harari? Of course. Yeah, like the biggest. He's an absolute legend. Okay, I can't compete with that one. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Like you could be my second favorite. <laughs> okay, I'll take um, I'll take that. Um, Only if Yuval is in the first place. Yeah, he's so cool. Like I've read people that maybe they don't know, like Homo Deus and Sapiens and um, Lessons what, of 20... Tomorrow. Yeah, I haven't read that, but 21st, 21 Laws for the 21st Century. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I've listened to loads of his stuff. But he was saying that he he meditates for two hours a day. Um, so for people that don't know, he's like a he's an incredible writer of really profound, detailed. Um, he, his book, one of them, Sapiens, is basically how we arrived at this stage of humanity. So starting from, you know, Homo. Um, Homo erectus or whatever it was that the first one and how we get to now and then the next one Homo deus is how we transform from evolve from Homo sapiens which is us now into Homo deus which is where we're integrated with machines and we're more godlike deus meaning god and it's um, beautiful that he makes he brings in different kind of research he doesn't say yeah. this is the way so this is the this is one way we think about it there's research there's another way and he doesn't claim any final ultimate justified knowledge no no he he he, he just lays it out in such a like so fascinatingly detailed that he brings in examples from everything and say, so an example of this would be in the Afghan war of 1979 when blah, 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 and this happened. And then he'll bring in another example. It's like one of those books where you'd have to read it like 50 times to be able to fully comprehend everything. But anyway, he was saying that he meditates for two hours a day and he's done, I can't remember if he said one month or two month silence retreats. So doing nothing but just meditate. And he said, he said every day he meditates for two hours. And there's me like saying I'm too busy to meditate for 10 minutes. And I'm like this guy who's writing these absolute whopping masterpiece books. And he can do it for two hours a day. And I'm like, right, come on, Connor, sort yourself out. You can do one day without technology or you can do one day of meditating. But Oh, you can change your excuse. Oh, I can change my excuse. Yeah, yeah instead busy of busy isn't the one that you should be using, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I try to remove that from my vocabulary of I don't have time is I haven't made time yet. Or this is not important for me sufficiently to make time for it. Yeah. I truly believe everything is a matter of priority. Mm. And uh, I don't want to make, I don't want to do vipassana. That's not for me. <laughs> I'm a social person. I probably will die, cry and die of misery and grief if I do this for a day or two. But maybe it would maybe for the for the extreme social person, it would it would be more of a challenge because it's not really that much of a challenge for someone if they hate talking anyway. No, no, but I had my challenge. I found my inner introvert through COVID time. Yeah. 
I was locked in a studio apartment with a beautiful view for the, of the sea in Israel, which was great. Uh, I had a, my job, which was very exciting and challenging at the time. I had my uh, partners to talk to online. And then I had my beautiful books and Netflix to watch. Mm -hmm. uh, so I found my inner introvert and I spent a lot of time with myself. It was great. But I don't do meditations. I understand it's, it's a process, working process to try to meditate. Mm -hmm. But my meditation is uh, ballet classes, actually. Ah, oh, you do ballet. That works like magic for me. Mm. Because the moment that you start hearing this music, you're by the bar and you hear this piano music normally, uh, and you have to concentrate on your body, exactly what you feel and how, what to release and what to contract. And you're into the music, into your body, and into the exercise. Mm. When you manage to do it properly, when you have, when you can really flow into it, and in the end you manage to stay in a balance and relevé for a few seconds even. Yeah, it feels like eternity, like you can live in it. And this is for me. This is my complete nirvana. This is my meditation. That's why I clear my head. I have zero other thoughts. Mm. I am just in the moment. That's amazing. I like. I think that there's something so there's something so beautiful about being able to connect mind and body in that way through whatever it is, you know, if it's meditation, if it's yoga. Um, I, I have to say I've done yoga many times and I've never achieved anything other than irritation. Um, <laughs> I find it irritating. I do it all the time because I know it's good for you, but I've never achieved any of the mental benefits um, that people purport. I really connect um, to you on that and I thought I'd fight it, so I went on yoga retreat two years ago or so. And in this yoga retreat, I understand the, the I mean, my, um, my intention was to reach this mental peace, meditate and to do yoga without being irritated. Because physically, I can do it. I'm very flexible. It's the mind mental state that is problematic. But I ended up by the end of the first day, not even second or third or fifth, I ended up convincing my whole fellow class of yogis to break out of that villa, go find wine, and <laughs> and have philosophical talking talks on the beach with the wine, uh, and that will be our spiritual awakening. I actually managed to convince them, so I appreciate my <laughs> persuasion skills, but it wasn't the point. The next day, my whole class of yogis were all. Uh, very hangover for the morning yoga class and the instructor wasn't very happy with me yeah i it's yoga is one of those strange ones and i know that stretching releases serotonin and that's nice for people and it can make people feel happy and i have experienced some calming effects from it if i do it at night but it's not really yoga it's more just like stretching before bed a little bit and that can feel nice but i i want to i want to develop some sort of dance practice um, to develop that mind body control and get into that state you reached because I've reached something similar to that once have you ever done ecstatic dance no so ecstatic dance is basically the idea is that it goes for it lasts for about two hours or something there'll be generally a DJ or maybe some some live music people playing and they'll play a whole set of kind of strange music um, and cool music though I like I, the, the times that I've, I've heard it, I've really enjoyed but the idea is that you're not supposed to be trying to dance in a cool way or follow any pattern or anything you're supposed to just like move in whatever way comes to you 
just move. If that means just like flapping your arms about or whatever or shaking your head or just like being weird, just not thinking and just doing. Any movements that need to come out of your body, just doing that. And when I first did it, for about the first half an hour, I was hating every second of it because you feel so awkward. I hate dancing anyway because I feel awkward and I'm not good at it. And then after about half an hour, and your mind's racing around like, what am I doing? This is horrible. What am I doing? Oh my God, 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 like repeatedly. And then after about half an hour, I was like, ah. Oh. And then I just kind of like relaxed a little bit. And I was like, okay, fine. Other people are just doing their stuff. No one cares what I'm doing. Like, let's just do stuff and just like flap about and be a little flailing fish. Um, and eventually then I ended up like sat on the floor, meditating for a little bit. And then I ended up crying and I had like what I would say was like a mild psychedelic experience. It felt like a low dose of mushrooms or something. And I was like, kept having these thoughts like, you need to forgive yourself, like stop being so hard on yourself and all these things. And like, I started crying. And then afterwards, I like, I, I, I kind of like zoned back in. And, I, and I, afterwards I said to the, the DJ, I was like, was there a song in there saying, um, I think it was saying, forgive yourself in Spanish, like, perdonate. And it triggers you. Um, and it, and I, I, I subconsciously had obviously picked that up and it had triggered me into feeling these feelings and then crying and then feeling really nice afterwards. And I was like, wow. Because wow. when, like, when you do something like that and it kind of like works, you're like, oh, this is so cool. And like, I've not, I've been invited to a few events, but I've not gone to one of them. But I've not like rushed back to do it because obviously I've still got in my head that first half an hour where I'm like, Ugh. But did you try it again? No. Oh, I did try it one more time, but I, it did was like... Did you have a similar effect? No, because I didn't... Um, like I was there kind of hanging out and there was ecstatic dance going on. So I wasn't like fully committed to it, you know, like I had been the, like the time before I was like 100% committed to this. I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to try it as hard as I can. Um, but I will go to another one of them and I would like to try it again and just like get used to just being an idiot, you know, and just like flapping about because like I used to just go to clubs and just stand there awkwardly not dancing because I just felt too awkward. Um, and I feel like loads of people do that, like <laughs> especially like British people anyway. British people just cannot dance. Um, you, know, you go to other countries and people are pretty good at it. But uh, Everybody's, uh, you know, kind of similar, I think, in the, this direction. But I, uh, there is something I want to recommend you because uh, I, I, I don't know if I can do the ecstatic dance because I used to be a dancer before political mm -hmm. and uh, PR and everything else. And so the only dance that I managed to do, which is not uh, very aesthetic and symmetrical, which, as you imagine, ballet and everything, it's very symmetrical, very aesthetic. You, you have to have full awareness. How do you look when you dance? You have to make it properly with the breathing, with the body, with all of that. So the only one I managed to do, which is not symmetrical and uh, aesthetic and beautiful, my uh, very dear friend, she's a choreographer and a dancer and performer, Anat Grigori, she convinced me to try th this class. There is a kind of new genre of a uh, different genre of dancing mm -hmm. developed in Israel by Ohad Naharin for Israeli uh, dancing band that's called uh, Batsheva and the style is Gaga. I don't know if you heard about it but in my, my uh, knowledge it's spreading around the world. So I tried their classes. So one of the one of Gaga, uh, one of Batsheva dancers would come to the studio and teach it for one hour. When I first arrived there, I believe I have some commitment issues and I realized it when I came to this class and the, uh, the instructor said at the beginning, you can't leave and come back from this class. We started together, we will finish it together. Mm. 
it's just one hour, okay? But in my in my mind, I was thinking, oh no, what if I don't have the liberty to leave and come back if I feel like because I didn't know this class, so I was. But I realized if I was freaking out so much about one hour of commitment that I can't leave the class, I might have some issues, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> but I did it. I convinced myself to stay, even though I was angry. And this is an amazing journey. It's an hour of a journey. But it's a bit different from what you said, because you said you just flap around whatever you want to do. And here, you there is music, and the dancer, leader, I don't know how to call it, instructor, leads you through it. Basically, it's a guided meditation through your body. Ah. At times, you can say, now you, you would feel your joints, only the joints, and feel all of the joints in your body. So you start moving, and you start remembering what are the joints you have, and you start moving them. Then he would say, and now you have to make your way through. The, the room is filled with honey, and you have to make your way through honey. And then you're making it. And he, he guides you through your body, through some body imagery, through nature. Now you're water, and now you're a tree, and now you're going through, through transformations. And in this way, you work with your whole body. You deconstruct the different parts, and it turns into this amazing experience where you're super connected you don't care how you look because everybody looks very weird in this class, except for the teacher, of course. Mm. And uh, But you truly connect to your body and you live through your body. Mm -hmm. And this also is a really great experience that I can recommend you to do. That does sound like something I would enjoy. Um, Very much well, so. enjoy is the wrong word, but it's something that I think I would benefit from. No, I actually enjoy. I believe um, so. Oh, okay, cool. Because I, 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 like, I do like it when I'm being told, like, focus what on to this. Do. Focus on that. Focus on this. Like it's much, it's much less stressful than trying to think of it yourself. And like, I because I I don't in, in ecstatic dance. I don't know if it's necessarily that you can't do nice dance moves. I mean, I certainly cannot do nice dance moves. But maybe someone who knows how to do nice dance moves. It's just the idea is just like doing whatever comes to you. You know, that's that's the point of it. But how do how do you spell this thing? You're Gaga. Talking about? Gaga. Oh. Just like that. Hmm. I'll give that a go. Have you ever heard of Bouton? Yes. Uh, That's my next one to try. Uh, I, I went to a, um, like, I can put you in contact some people if you'd like, um, because I went to this Bouton event here, and I didn't know what it was. I just, like, um, I knew the lady running it, and so I was just went on, along to the event, and I brought my girlfriend, and we, did, we were just like, what the you fuck is going out. on? Like, <laughs> I wasn't freaked out, but, like, I've been to, a, like, a a fair few kind of weird events and like I knew it would be something quite weird just because I, I just knew the lady and I knew it'd be something strange but my girl like I my girlfriend hadn't been to kind of weird events she didn't she thought she was going to see like a dance show I thought I was coming to see a dance show basically but I knew it'd be some sort of strange like contemporary interpretive dance or something like that but people who don't know Bhutto is like this weird Japanese um, dance where it's almost like death and rebirth at the same time and the people are doing these really they're painted really kind of horribly it's supposed to be a very raw raw conditions of raw, raw stages of life yeah it can be birth giving birth it can be pain the the moments where you're most raw and uh, and authentic yeah and um the people in it they they report that when they practice at it they can get into these totally out of these world um like states of consciousness and some one of the guys i was speaking to was saying that he was like totally because you have to basically like feel everything and get involved with the earth and 
basically like submit yourself, remove your brain and submit yourself to the movement and what you're doing. And the guy I was speaking to that saw the event, he went with the Bhutto people to this festival um, in Italy, I think it was, and he was uh, like doing it with them. And he said that he was like basically out of his mind and he was ended up just like eating dirt on the floor. And then there were some people that they get into these crazy states of consciousness and then they spend like a week coming back to reality um no so, chemical instances involved i mean maybe some of them do use some chemicals but it, it's that's not the the point of it sure i'm just saying that um, that might explain that they had some troubles to get back to their conscious reality yeah yeah uh, that's that's what i thought as well i mean i you know that the guy was mushrooms or i don't yeah. know whatever other substances like oh my god buto i just left my consciousness elsewhere how do i find my way back yeah you eat less mushrooms man yeah yeah i mean, um, I haven't tried them, but I, that's how I imagine it. Yeah, I mean, the guy I was speaking to, I, he smoked a lot of weed, I think, but um, maybe some other stuff. But it, that it did get me thinking, can you get to these states without anything? And I'm sure you can. Um, I mean, you certainly can. How difficult is it? Can only certain people reach those states? But that kind of fascinated me and made me want to try it. Like, because I'm... I'm a, Somewhat obsessed with altering consciousness. Um, Have you read Castaneda? Yeah, I've read. Um, so the 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 debate about his books is whether all the thing that he's describing is only possible through drugs, and was some even say that he propagates drugs, but the others say no, he propagates altering consciousness. It can be also achieved without, but it's just much harder and longer work, and people want a shortcut. That's why they take psychedelics, in my understanding. Yeah, this is something that I've I think about frequently because i i mean i think that for for people who don't know carlos castaneda he he was like an anthropologist in about the 50s i think um and he went from the states he must have had like some with carlos castaneda he must have been like a latin american parents but he he went down to mexico and he basically ended up meeting this shaman there called don juan Um, and a shaman basically is like, you know, what we would think of a witch doctor being like, um, and living sort of in the, in the kind of jungly area. Um, and he's and guiding them, guiding him. Don Juan is guiding him towards taking him on this spiritual journey. Yeah. Of sort of teaching him how to become a shaman. Um, and they, they explain, they, they talk about a lot of crazy things such as transferring your consciousness into animals being able to like pass through water, um, like transfer your consciousness through water, going on these crazy journeys to other places in their head um, and basically like moving their body from one place to another. But the way they talk about it is if it's as if it's happening. Like I think the end of the book that I read, I can't remember what the name of it was, but um, he was basically saying that he talked about it and then he was like, explaining all these crazy things that were going on and then he was like and then i woke up in my bed back in america oh um, i didn't get to that part yeah i mean there's a few different books that he's written um i got one in spanish and i got one in english um but yeah but it did it, 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 like you're saying it just makes me think like is this all drug induced because you definitely can reach those states without you know like if you practiced um 
meditating loads, uh, then you could reach those states, I'm sure. But if you practice what, sorry? Meditating a lot. Oh, just you know. meditating. I don't um, know. But just for you, to, for you to know, we are both in Barcelona. We're based here now, right? So when you have progress with this, do let me know. <laughs> I don't do drugs. <laughs> and I'm very interested in altering consciousness. So I want to learn about it and I would like to hear about it. And I have one anecdote which links us actually back to politics. Mm -hmm. One of the candidates I didn't work for, I tried to, but I didn't work out for reasons you will understand now. I was approached by, uh, um, I'm trying to put it somehow normally, without revealing who it is, but also without. I was, I was approached by one of the politicians okay. to, to work for him, her, them and we had the discussion and it was all good and uh, I wasn't a big fan of the direction they were going but I was mm -hmm. thinking okay it will be okay for this time in between the elections so it was quite far it was four years to elections just after a consequent once right and I was thinking yeah I have enough time so maybe uh, it was good for this time or also maybe I can change the direction they're heading in right uh, towards what I think is more suitable and best for them and for the country. And then uh, this candidate asked me to have a, um, this politician asked me to have a talk with his uh, secret advisor. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, um, I can listen to that. What's hmm. happening there? Secret advisor was weird. Something like, uh, I don't even know, Gandalf. Oh. Looking, uh, and he asked me, "Can you please tell me what you intend to do for us to make us win the next elections and get whatever votes?" And uh, I said, "Well, clearly, you know, there are ways. We will seg we'll make a segmentation. We'll work on a strategy for each segment. We'll implement all that in every possible direction. Normal election work that you do preparations." And then he gave me a speech on altering consciousness mm. by NLP, hypnosis and all kind mm. of stuff. And part of it sounded a bit voodoo beyond Castaneda. Interesting. And I think it's interesting, but I also believe that when you work in politics in real country with real people, <laughs> real votes, and you have four years, you can also, because what he, <clears throat> what he told me was, <clears throat> Sorry, that uh, he can teach me ways how to alter consciousness so people will go and vote and the next day they will not know why they did it. But as a political consultant and advisor, I really found it between funny and uh, sad. I told him, but we have four years to actually do the work and show the people why they should vote for us. Oh, right. So, so, so you so you had basically someone had just been elected and then you had the next four years to try and like increase their chances yeah. to be elected. Right. So this this person, secret mm. advisor, whatever he was, he was just telling me, yes, how about the, for all this time, I will teach you how you change consciousness of people. So they vote and then they don't know why they did it. But I was truly shocked because, in my opinion, four years is really sufficient time and also just fair enough. And that's what you should do. You should actually work, show them work, show your intentions, show your directions. So they will know for sure why they voted for you. Yeah. That's yeah, just yeah. fucked up. It is fucked up. But I think it must be, especially now. I'm still with... sad I didn't stick in to, to learn the techniques 
Yeah, I mean, it could have been like voodoo, but then even nowadays it's e probably easier than voodoo with things like Facebook marketing. You know, like the whole thing with the US elections where Facebook was allowing, I can't remember, I don't really know about US politics, but allowing one party to get more of the votes with Facebook marketing because if you're yeah. if you're hammered with true but um, I'm still I'm an old school and also uh, I told you why I wanted to go study law in the first place yeah. right so with my sense of justice I wouldn't want to go that way I wouldn't no, want no, to no. advise my candidate go that way no because first I would choose my candidates what's that what that's what I was doing I was choosing them according to my moral compass and also today we have internet And it serves you also the other way. So whatever you did through your campaign or before your campaign or what you ever did or said, it will always come back to you. I know. That's the thing now. It's like nothing is hidden ever. So it's like make everything that you do genuine because otherwise it's going to come back to exactly. you. Exactly. And then you're going to spend your, your the rest of your time chasing back over it. And like I know that it's like as a politician you're not supposed to make any mistakes but it's like really okay no you can make mistakes but own, own them. the mistakes exactly and i think that's one thing that i do actually like about cancel culture that's happening now is it gives some people chances to say okay i did fuck up here um i'm gonna own that it gives it it it, it But they're it, not being forgiven cancel culture is gone too far because it's not it's forgiving gone, people it, it's gone too far in that case but It, it shows younger generations when they see maybe some of their heroes or celebrities or whoever it is publicly apologizing for something that shows some humility. And then it's up to the public. True, to, it's, true. It's, it's up to the public to forgive them. If they don't, then that's that's unfortunate. That is true. But, but it was too much of this cancel culture. You can't say anything anymore. So what about the freedom of speech, which was the first and most important right we have? Yeah, it, it is true. You can't say anything anymore. Yeah, yeah, it is true. And it's, I don't know, it's, yeah, it's a thin line. It's a thin line, but it's like, that's always what, that's always what has put me off politics, you know, because when I listen to people talking, I'm just like, bullshit, 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 bullshit. And like, I was talking with another guy a few weeks ago. Um, we were saying that, imagine if, instead of having like a 20 minute uh, news clip where you have like four people in a debate debating each other, What if you made them have a four-hour podcast with each other? Because you can't really bullshit can for four hours. Off, they can still do it for four hours. Do you think? Yeah, yeah. Well oh, trained. God. How about we make it... Um, you know what? I'll say it differently. What I wish for all countries is that the electorate, the people, hold their leaders much harsher to what they actually promised and said and promised and do. Mm. Because people become too forgetful and too forgiving. And Internet is remembering everything. And people also should. But people start to either explain themselves the dissonance post-elections when the elected candidate starts doing crap and going against everything they, they promised. People have to explain themselves why they voted for him or her. And they go like, yeah, because of blah. And they just forgive. People should not be as forgiving. And this will be holding their candidates, their politicians, to higher standards and really hold them to their words. But it's also kind of like, it's more complicated than that because it's a little bit different in Israel. But for example, in England or the US, you have two main parties um, that get most of the votes. So it's like, if you vote for one of them, that means that you're for that one and against this one. For mo in, in most cases, it's like, 
opposites. So it's like, I love this one and I hate this one. So then if I, if I criticize this one when I'm supporting them, it means that then I'm like a, like on this side, it's like, you know, back in when the Cold War was going on, it's like, if you criticize the government, you're a communist and like yeah. all that type of thing. And it's yeah. like, so then people, they, they join in the team and they're like, well, oh shit, I voted for these people. And if I start criticizing them, then it means I'm an idiot because I voted for this person. It's like, makes it quite complicated. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I for, know. It makes it quite complicated. But you know what for, I mean. The people no, should, I know 100%. Should, should, people should hold their politicians to higher standard and hold them to their word. Mm. Because every people, every country, every people, all the people, they deserve the government they have, unfortunately. Either by voting or not voting or allowing them to break their promises. Yeah, it's very true. So we have um, taken a big detour there and uh, let's go which back. Was fun. Which was a, was a lovely detour. And I, I, that's the best thing about podcasts, I think, is the detours. Um, let's go back to the start of your career after you joined um, with after you went to the way your friend was working what was the beginning stages of like of that like how were you feeling when you entered into this world of politics I was the assistant of the assistant of the assistant of the uh, assistant of the cleaner of the assistant of the cleaner uh-huh. something like that my job was to listen to the news read the news and then to send a uh, summary of the news to the MPs uh-huh. over beeper I'm that old. Beeper? What, Beeper. Like, like a pager? Like a pager, yeah. Oh, nice. <laughs> I am that old, you see. Uh, so, yeah, that's what we are doing. And uh, in fact, what happened was that uh, the, the top advisors for that candidate would come once in a while to our very small, dark monitoring room. They would watch the news with us. And then they would say, you see this? Some very insignificant... Uh, moment in the news and then they would would speculate that this will cause A, B, C, D, E and results in absolutely unthinkable outcome and I would say that can't be and you cannot say it from this how is it impossible and in a week or two it would happen and I got so impressed and so absolutely overwhelmed with this I just started I decided that this is this is it that's what I want to do I could feel it in my veins. Mm. I was excited. I was passionate about it. I wanted to learn more. This was my vipassana. Mm. This was the longest time I wouldn't talk. I would just ask a question and listen, mm. which is not my uh, modus operandi, unfortunately, <laughs> normally. <laughs> but really, that's how it worked then. That's right. And so do you think that those people, do you think that they had um, like an innate skill for it yes. or do you think it was experience? I think it's both. You need to have innate skill because you need to read the room, you need to read the people, you need to have the very strong feeling about it. Mm-hmm. But then also you need to have experience to know which one of your feelings, gut feelings and an analysis mm. works out and which doesn't. They had both. And until now, these people, they're really one of the top uh, in consultancy. and uh, That's really area. cool. Mm. I've I've wanted for a long time, I've always thought it would be because I feel like there's so much news out there. I don't read the news. I don't watch it because I don't want my head getting filled with junk. Um, when there's something important going on, I'll do independent research about that thing. Um, but I don't want my head filled with what I consider to be bullshit, basically. Um, and stuff which... Things which will make me... Things which will make me upset that I can't do anything about. It's like, what is the point of knowing that? Like... Three women and their children were murdered outside the school today. I'm like, okay, that's horrible. But <laughs> I don't need to know that. 
Like, it, it's just why? Why are you telling me that? Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. You know, I used to, well, I needed to consume the news in every possible way. But uh, at some point in between elections, I, I just r- got rid of my TV. Mm. And the moment elections would stop, I would just get rid of every possible news app. Yeah. And if you need to know something, you will know it, of course, and then you would go and research it. Yeah. But especially after I finished my last round of elections, which was 2016, and I decided to switch completely the industry and go to high tech and to business sector, I just stopped talking about elections as well and about politics. I used to do it at the beginning. I would go and convince somebody about Israeli politics, who is right, who is wrong. And then I said, no, 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 no. When I worked in politics, I felt some there was some justification for me reading about it or talking about it because I could influence it. Mm-hmm. If I came up of uh, uh, if I came up with a different idea or some notion or heard something that might influence, so I could actually take it to my candidates and I could make an impact. But when I stopped with the elections, talking about politics felt like I'm a taxi driver. Yeah, and I'm chatting with my passengers having zero influence or whatsoever. So why bother? Why fry the air, as the Italians say? <laughs> so I just stopped doing that. Yeah, it's like sometimes you meet people and they're extremely opinionated and it's like they're, they're very, they, they need to tell you about what's going on. But it's like, sometimes I kind of think, why? Like in your situation, you were, you were involved in that. So, you know, that's kind of bringing your work home, I suppose. Um, but then you meet people who they're just, they're just, angry about what's going on and the situation but they're not really doing anything to change it and it's like you're, you're allowing yourself to become angry and annoyed at the government and this that and the other but if you're not involved in that world you can't do anything to change it it's kind of like what's the point like true. Absolutely you know true. if you want to go and write letters to your mp or something to to protest or you know, try and make little changes or join a political party or do something. It's like, otherwise... You can open NGO, you can be activist, you can, you can try to influence. Yeah, If you exactly. decide to, but if you decided not to, then shut up. Yeah, then it, don't waste your time. Exactly. Don't, don't let yourself people get... people as well, yeah. Because there's, there's, a lo- there's a lot of negativity in that world. And it's like a world of snakes. You know, everybody's trying to attack each other and everyone's like... I don't know, I find it interesting in the world of politics that the type of people that get to the top political levels, they have to be a certain type of person, a person that is obsessed with power, basically. They have to be someone who is quite ruthless. They have to be someone who's often not emotional. Um, And then you end up with these certain types of people who are in these positions who are all just like ruthless, quite unemotional, um, want a lot of power, very hard working and then these people are just like against each other it's like the the most like i don't agree about unemotional i think they're very emotional do you think yeah maybe maybe um empathetic then i don't know about empathetic i just think they have real very deep emotions most of which are based on not based at, uh, aimed at how i feel how confident i feel about staying in this chair or winning the chair or continue, because as you said, the most important thing for all politicians is to stay in politics. Mm. This is the end game, basically. What you do in the, in the middle, varies. True, 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 true. Yeah, maybe, maybe it's more like empathy because the higher, like, politicians have high rates of sociopathy. So it's like, because the, the emotional connection with other people needs to be distant because you have to make decisions which can have a huge impact on people 
and you have to basically weigh up really difficult decisions. So if you're like worrying about every single person. Sure, yeah, I agree with you. You have to lose some sort some uh, some amount of empathy because you can't be on the top of it and be people pleaser. Yeah, yeah. You will never get to the top if you're people. You will not go. You will not get anywhere if you're people pleaser. Mm. That's the first thing you need to get treated when you want to go anywhere. Yeah. Especially politics. And so then, how did you then progress from being the assistant of the assistant of the assistant um, and learning about the news? And did you? Did, How quickly did you feel that you two developed weeks. as a person? I think it was first of all in two weeks. I felt like I've been born in the parliament. I know everything about everybody. Hmm. I know all their biographies, who their friends are, who their enemies are. I just somehow learned it very quickly. And uh, by the end of the elections, it it was probably a few months, but it felt like a few years. In elections, it goes triple the dog years. Hmm. And uh, also in the elections, the good thing I like about the elections, comp- the campaign uh, itself, is uh, nobody can hide who they really are. It's such a pressure pot, how you call it in mm. proper English. Yeah, I suppose pressure pot makes sense. Yeah, it's your true colors come out. Yeah, second week tops. You really can't. You're 24 hours super high pressure, and really, so it's really nice because if you nice, it's good. Because when you make friends there, it's friends for life. Mm. Because it's the true person and you just have the shortcut to know who they are, who you can work with, who you can click with. So I think it's really important to know from the beginning who you can rely on, who can trust on in this really hard journey through elections. And well, the first one we lost miserably. Mm. We got half of what we were supposed to get. I don't know whatever happened. I don't remember anymore. But we all fired <laughs> and uh, yeah, immediately effective immediately and then uh, the spokesperson and the assistant spokesperson decided to open PR company and they hired me. Ah, okay. I just run there because I was feeling already that this is my, this is something that I really want to do and that is something I should do and I need to do because I felt it in my veins. I went to every possible uh, course, every possible lecture, every workshop, everything. I was uh, absorbing information madly while having experience working in PR. Mm. And in uh, eight months, I opened my own company. Ah. And then I decided that I like the most, if it's, I like the most political sphere and arts to balance it out. So I was doing public relations for public, uh, political NGOs and for artistic um, projects. Mm. Dance, music, uh, all of it. Ah. So that's what I was doing. And until in... Next elections, I was uh, was called upon by another candidate, and I became already not the assistant of assistant of assistant, just one <laughs> step. And I believe by my fourth elections, I was already a senior advisor. Hi, sorry, would you mind letting someone else quickly? Sorry. Oh yeah, sure. What's happening there? Um. So they just need to be let out. This is fantastic because now I can have a bite. Tiny bite of sugar. Yeah, I do forgot. Do you want a or anything? Huh? Do you want a wee or some water or anything? No, 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 I'm good. Okay. I just didn't put any sugar in my coffee. Oh, no.
know. There's like some class on at the moment, but then Noah's walked out and he's left. He's locked the door. Mm. This is fun. Yeah, it's fine. Uh-huh. <sighs> Feels like we need to make another one on uh, on dance and art and philosophy. Yeah. Oh, there we go. Is it better? Why is it also available on video? Yeah. Oh my God. If only I knew. Yeah. I'll be doing this like, oh. Excuse me. Yeah, what were you saying? What you were saying? Yeah. Uh, okay. And after we finish, we can retake the first sen the first question, right? Because you just refer to me as a comedian, a human. <laughs> I'd rather have my actual job stuff at the beginning. Um, yeah, what's your, what's, what's your other job? Oh, wait, shit. I work in high tech. Oh, OK. I'm a senior technology partnerships manager. Oh. I know, right? OK. Um, I just like that, you know, I'm a woman and I'm blonde and I have like senior in technology in my title of work. Ah, OK. I right. learned techie words, I can say them. OK, so... Uh, apologies for the little interruption there. Um, we're back rolling. Um, why do you look so shocked? You look shocked. You're editing everything at the end, don't you? Yeah, I'll edit the little... The okay. little um, Okay. okay. Just saying it's not life, is it? <laughs> no, I'll take out, right? I'll take out. Okay, great, great. Um, sorry, we're going to actually start again now. Okay. Um, okay, sorry for that little interruption. Um, so you were saying, because that was going to be my question, how did you go from um, being just like the assistant into an advisor, but then I see that now you've started the PR company, um, so that's PR specifically for politicians? Or... No, it was a public relations company. And uh, I decided to focus not on commercial projects, but more on uh, public, political, governmental and arts. Okay. And did you at any point have any political ambitions for yourself to be a candidate? No. No. I don't have the guts for it. <laughs> I really don't. I also don't have this feeling because one of my candidates... One of the times, one of the campaigns entered the room with the uh, with the materials for uh, for the field, right? When they put posters out or billboards and said that uh, they, the politician, don't see their face sufficiently on those materials, there would be more of the face, and that was just an anecdote, right? That was just a thing. Probably it's normal to say it and to have this. I just don't have this feeling that I want, I would want to have my face everywhere. And I feel I deserve to have my face everywhere. I have my opinions and I always try to choose my candidates in alignment with my opinions. Okay. But I don't have what it takes to wake up and have the whole world badmouth you and just say, no, it's okay and not take it personally. Yeah, it's a, it's a very, I always think about this, like it's a very tough thing because no matter what you do, you're going to have like course, yeah. maybe 50% of yeah. people hating you or yeah. more than that. Like, even if you are trying to be the best politician you can possibly be and do the best thing you can, you're going to be hated by yeah. half the people. So if you don't have um, fixed skin, you, you can't go there. And I definitely don't have that. <laughs> yeah. 
I would rather, and also I realize that I'm really good at this, at picking a person that I believe in. Yeah. And then doing everything in my power to support that person, to facilitate their ideas and their way. I'm much better in this, <clears throat> sorry, I'm much better in this than at uh, putting myself in front. Yeah. I was talking with, um, it's interesting what you said there about picking just the person, not necessarily the policies, but the, the person. Like, do you believe this is a good person or not? Should be the fundamental question, really. Because it, I was talking about this with my, my friend recently with regards to, um, you know, billionaires. Like, we were talking about Elon Musk and Bill Gates. And obviously, they have a lot of people hating on them. Um, but then when you hear people who have met them and other successful rich people, they basically say nothing but pure positive things about them. Yet you have random people on the internet who are like, oh my God, this person's a psychopath, he's trying to kill us, and all this type of stuff. And it's like, do you believe, you know, like Elon Musk at the moment is acting, doing some strange things on Twitter um, and saying some like weird controversial things. I think he's maybe having a bit of a crisis. But ultimately, like I've just finished his his biography, and um, it's just mega interesting. And these people, these ultra-successful people, they're obsessed with what they're doing. They're not really... They don't care about other things. They care, He cares about going to Mars. That's it. He cares about going to Mars. He cares about providing clean energy. Um, but he can't allow himself to be distracted by what the internet thinks about no. him. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't affect his life. And, and also for this... Sorry, but I think it's mainly young generation, but not necessarily that uh, walk around saying that, uh, oh, no, this uh, um, millionaires, billionaire people, they rob us from our money. That's why we are poor. No, you're poor because you've been lying on the couch for all your life. Get up, get an idea and work hard for it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's an unpopular opinion. I know. Um. <laughs> I'm fine with having unpopular opinions. <laughs> yeah. I'm just saying that if you, as a person, as a, yeah, as a person, if you didn't get up, Get out, get put yourself out there and try to make a living. Mm -hmm. Really having hard, working hard, having ideas, developing ideas. That then Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, all of them, they didn't take a, a penny from you. you. Just didn't do anything for yourself. Yeah, but then there's all there's the argument, of course, that there are certain people who they might work. For example, in the UK, nurses get paid nothing. Um, and they work really long hours, they work really hard, but they don't get paid very much. Sure, but that's a different discussion. Um, yeah. But the, then, co the working conditions should be different. The paying conditions should be different. The opportunity should be different. But it has nothing to do with Elon Musk himself. Yeah. yeah Coming yeah, to, I don't know, John and robbing him from his money on the couch. No, John has to get up, get out and try to work hard, not just physically, but also with his brain. Yeah. At least make it, give it a go, try it, do it. Yeah, and I don't know, it's like for me, I, I've always kind of been on the side of, of these people because Bill Gates, for example, he is a nerd. He loves computers and that's what he wants to do. And then he did that, created like the most successful computer company ever um, and then went on to try and do philanthropy and cure malaria in Africa and provide running water all over Africa and he still gets hated for it and I'm thinking like the higher up and the more successful you get like a politician or whatever even if you're trying to do the best thing that you can you're so restricted in what you can do I mean a billionaire is less restricted than the politician um, 
because they've got more money and they can actually control politicians if they need to. But it's like, as a politician, I, I just think it'd be a horrible job. I think it'd be horrible. But people have to do it. And that's why it's, it's good that we have these type of people yeah, alive. Yeah, but somebody wants to do it. But somebody wants to go and do <laughs> it, like, and just take the shit from everybody. Because I always think it would be, it must be so, it must be hard as well. Because I think that a lot of people, especially when they're young, they're probably filled with hope and dreams. And they're like, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to change the whole world. And that's the type of person that, probably goes into that type of role and then they get in there and they're like oh this is this is different to what i expected <laughs> i didn't bargain for, I didn't this, bargain so for yeah. this like i i am i have my hands tied i have to do you know i have to do the right thing so that my constituents uh, are happy i can't do this because that's going to get me bad votes even though i want to do this and this would be a good idea that's not going to be received by my constituents it's like such a crazy manic game so tell me about how you started choosing your candidates then like what was your what is your what was your criteria for them it's really more than personal level i understand that not as i know many political advisors they work by their ideals mm. and they say i will choose a party it doesn't really work for me never worked for me i was always choosing a person i can work with the person i connect to because at the end you speak to this person 25 hours a day mm. out of 24 this is the person you connect to and communicate to more than your family and your friends. Yeah. So you must have a good connection with the person. You must believe that the person wants the right thing and can achieve the right thing. And then you are there to facilitate that. Mm. Of course, you can always, and I think that you might, you don't have to, but you, I, that's what I was doing. I would put also my own beliefs in it and my mm. own ways. Because when you're choosing from the topics that are votable, that will bring your candidate the most votes. And the topics you consider the most important, you can always make the crossover. True. And then your personal opinion also comes into account because you could choose one of those, I don't know, four or five most top-ranked topics that will bring your candidate the votes. Mm -hmm. So you can choose the ones that actually you care about most or you think more important. That's how I... Sorry. That's how I saw that I bring my personal involvement and I make my personal impact. Okay, so you're you're advising that person how to be the best person they can be, basically, as opposed to saying, I'm going to pick this party and try and push the agenda of this party. You're kind of picking a person and saying, well, I think you're a good person. I think that if you put in some of these policies, you're going to win votes with this, which is good for you and good for what I think is good. Exactly. Based on... Yes. Uh, so that's pretty cool. And I think that that from... What I understand anyway that I also thought was pretty cool and also um, highlights the like egalitarian and representative nature of Israel was the fact that they use proportional representation in government. So if you get a certain amount of votes, you get that certain amount of seats in government, which is totally different from how we do it in the UK and the US. I don't know about other countries, but I know that proportional representation is not that common in parliaments. So you can end up with, you know, loads of different parties that have a voice in government. Whereas in England, we have something called first past the post, where it's like you have like 600 650 approximately seats available, and each area is one constituency. And then that area whoever gets the most vote in, votes in that area 
wins that seat. So there'll be like a seat for this part of London, a seat for that part of London, and whoever wins the most votes in that specific area gets that seat. So it means that in theory, like it's massively disproportional because depending on the, like in, to in terms of the total number of votes that are actually given for a party, it can be totally imbalanced because it depends on the, the, the area that you live in because an area can have less people or more people. And so a party could get, like one party could get, if for example, the Conservatives got 51% of the votes in every constituency and Labour got 49, then Conservatives would have 100% of the seats and Labour would have zero. And obviously that doesn't happen, but it is, it's disproportional like that. And it's like one of the big criticisms of that method because it's not representative of the number of votes that are actually given to a party. Yeah. And it means that smaller parties have almost no chance because they have to compete in their area with the biggest parties. So they have to win the most amount, they have to win the total, the most votes in that specific area. So there's only like certain areas which are more kind of hippie or um, a little bit different that end up getting the smaller parties like the Green Party. Mm -hmm that they get in any seat. So it's like they, they get hardly any, which is quite strange. And it, it must be really frustrating there. But it's cool in Israel that you end up then with loads of different parties. However, that then creates way more conflict and division. So that's like the balance of these two systems. There are other political systems, but like that's the, <clears throat> that's the balance of it. Do you want this, which is unbalanced, but makes it easier to agree upon things? Or do you want every government being a coalition government with loads of different parties that have all got a voice and then you can't agree on anything and everybody's having to like, one candidate might be in this party this time and then they might join a different party next time and then they might start their own party and then another person might join that party and like then you just have all this like constantly changing, which seems like, it seems more modern. It seems more like inclusive, modern, free market, uh, like a more... It just seems so. I have to correct you there about the different parties. In, in, the idea is great. The idea is really good. The idea is all about uh, representation and inclusivity. Uh, but at the end, de facto, the past 10 years, all elections have been over one issue only. Mm. Are you pro Netanyahu or against him? That's all that matters by now. Unfortunately... But when you are 15, 17, I don't know how many years in when a seat, it comes down to this. When you get too comfortable in your seat and half of the country just wants you out and the other half only wants you in, unfortunately, it comes down to this. So he ended up like, a, like an elected dictator almost. Sort of, yes. And also having too many, not too many, many uh, smaller parties, it ends up having unproportional pressure and power in forming coalition. Mm. Because in Israel, you have 120 vote in, uh, seats, and to be, in, uh, to be in coalition, to form a government, you need the 61. And 61 is a very narrow and unstable coalition, so the more, the merrier, of course. And uh, in order to get to the government to sign it, which happens every time with Netanyahu, parties start to bargain Mm. and say, I will sign it, I will get into the government, but I want double amount of ministers. I want those and those laws. So they basically blackmail the prime minister 
for issues that are important to them to go back on his promises or to make some uh, concessions that are unacceptable or half acceptable just so that he can he'll be able to form a coalition so the more parties you have the more blackmailing you do uh yeah i'm not saying that Niao is wonderful and great i don't believe in it and i don't like him personally or politically and i think he's harmful for the country but with that i think that he is facing immense pressure from all of these parties and while one of my candidates in the past tipi livni she over over how do we say topped him she won the elections mm-hmm. she got more uh, um more seats than uh, than the neo's party she did not form the coalition and she gave the mandate to him because she did not want to give in to the pressure of the orthodox parties for their blackmailing uh. for the conditions they were posing for her and she was sure that the electorate the people will see it and they would appreciate that she did not give in to this blackmail but people only saw that they gave her the votes she didn't use and them she wasted it exactly so Netanyahu mm. saw it as well and learned his lesson so whatever he is being blackmailed to he he agrees to everything mm. and then you have the coalition uh, discipline which means there is no representation for the minorities they they are in opposition they can shout they can make protests but they don't have real power they don't they, they are not ministers they cannot jeopardize the legislation because he has the necessary majority and mm. all the ultra orthodox and right wing parties their coalition discipline is still is strong is unshakable so it's normally a very stable government which is fantastic but it's stable on from my opinion wrong values and wrong direction okay um so can you yeah that seems i see we like i suppose i suppose all politics is a little bit like that you're always getting blackmail from certain angles but it if you have to form a coalition with people you totally disagree with having said that maybe having people you totally disagree with in in your government is a good thing who knows like in terms yeah, of yeah but there's no disagreement the moment you sign the coalition that's it so it's not disagreement just blackmailing you taking disagreement to discourse but it's not really what's yeah, happening yeah 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 it's well, not really what's happening yeah disagreement through like you still have to sort of be a little bit accountable to the people in your government because you're still going to have to hear constantly their point of view so it's like you're still hearing that so i suppose it could make you a little bit more accountable mm. but but the way nathaniel um raised his uh, herd is uh, let's just say that before previous elections there were there was a golden chain with his uh, portrait distributed among his followers who was singing bibi the king uh. just to let you know how open to discourse the person is and the people are when there's a left wing coalition yes then every party has debate inside their party mm-hmm. inside inside their party central left they're known for being super critical about their own leaders holding them accountable for everything discussing everything putting it on to endless sometimes too much of debate so yes when you have central left coalition that's what happening it's less stable because it's much more open for discussion everything is up there everybody is accountable then again it's less stable but it's more democratic when it's central right or like now right and radical right there is no discussion so 
Can you explain first, we've been talking about Netanyahu, maybe people don't know who Netanyahu is. If they don't and they're interested, I would say I listened to a podcast a while back of him on Jordan Peterson's podcast. Very interesting. He's a fascinating person. Um, it was very difficult for me. He was explaining the Israel-Palestine thing as well from an Israeli point of view. Um, very difficult. From, like what he's saying makes total logical sense, but it's very difficult to understand if what he's saying is accurate for one and if it's if, if it's true, basically. Um, but he's just, it seems like a fascinating person that has turned Israel around and turned it into a superpower in a relatively short amount of time and re basically revolutionized the country technologically um, and in a lot of ways like that. However, you described him to me as an evil genius. Um, that's my personal opinion. That's your personal opinion. Yes. I mean, that's not his like like his official status. Evil genius, Netanyahu. <laughs> um, I don't know if we could, if anybody can attribute to him. Of course, he does attribute it to himself. Yeah. The whole revolutionizing Israel, making it tech a uh, uh, startup uh, nation. Mm. I really don't think it's his personal uh, achievement. Yeah, true. I suppose, yeah. Um, but can you explain a bit about why is he controversial and what are his policies? And you've mentioned radical right there. Can you explain the difference between right and left from your perspective? Initially, it's a bit different than in Europe and the States. I don't want to go too deep into this. Mm -hmm. I would just say that generally right wing is a... By the way, now Netanyahu is the mildest of the whole right wing parties. He used to be quite right-wing himself, but now he is the mildest out of all of this new amazing government. Um, at the end, it comes down to right-wing sees Jews and uh, Israelis and Palestinians as a one-country solution. Okay. As let's be in the happy co-living. Basically, when... It is possible, in my opinion, and there are ways to do this, but it's not the best way to go. And central left normally turns towards two-state solution. There is a mm. need for a country, for the Palestinian people, for official sovereign country, both for the end to give back some of the some of the territories that uh, used to be on the map before. <laughs> Let's phrase it in this very subtle way. Some territories that disappeared from the map. <laughs> they didn't disappear from the map, but if you want to go to history, they were we were attacked and they were taken due to attack of five countries. So no, I don't feel any bad for that, that they are now in Israel. I'm just saying that some of them, we truly don't need them. They're just a burden and let's give it back while we are creating the other Palestinian state. That's what my opinion. Okay, so... so Israel would reclaim some land that was taken before and at the same time would give Palestine its own state. That would be ideal solution, in my opinion, yes. And where would these lands have to come from? Which countries would they be in now? Sorry, that will be the Palestinian territory and some of the currently Israeli territories. But there have been a huge dilemma there, and it still is, which is territorial continuancy. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at Israel right now, so many cities and villages and towns, they are mixed. Mm. And some of them are majorly Jewish, some of them are majorly Arabic. 
and it's so intertwined inside the country. It's almost impossible to make territorial contingency. And this is part of the dilemma and what stops this two-state solution, basically. Not just this, but it's one of the issues. Yeah. So people would have to be basically rehomed or... Nobody wants to be relocated. No. Also, I truly believe that once the state is created, majority of Israeli Arabs would, would prefer to stay in Israel. They have homes there, they have jobs there, they have friends there. They're very comfortable. But also, I truly believe that they need to have some alternative. If they don't like it, they can go somewhere. Yeah. And yeah. so far, the neighboring countries, their brothers, are not really rushing to take them in. The refugee camp had been outside of Lebanon for 70 years now. It's their religious brothers. It's their, all, all, in every possible way, they're much more connected and they don't let them in. They prefer to keep them in this refugee camp and to continue getting money for having the refugee camp while they could have integrated them 70 years ago and made their lives easier and better. Jordan, Egypt, anybody. Mm. It's very sad, but it's an issue. Yeah. Yeah, it's very it's very complex. And so Netanyahu, he is um he wants the 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 one state solution. Yes. And what are his other policies that that are unpopular? His unpopular policies with the with the middle low class is that he continuously strengthen the um, the position of a higher level class, high class, and uh, low, and uh, harms the ones in periphery, in suburbs, near the borders. And somehow, in spite of him uh, hurting the lower class, working class, they keep more and more voting for him. Almost like a Stockholm syndrome. Yeah. Or do you think that then that do you think that that signifies then that these people just care about the Israel-Palestine thing and they don't care about the other policies? They might be more prone to to listen to his rhetorics and uh, be susceptible to, to emotions. You know, the good thing is that the good thing I believe it's I believe I can see it as a good thing. The two sides that both want for the best of the country and the people. They just see it differently. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the right wing that is for one state solution, they are more driven by emotions. Well, the left wing is more reasonable. And that's why I think it's harder to get more votes, because it's less contagious when you're reasonable. When you go and say, yes, this is the better way to go. It's really important to do this way. It, it, it reflects our values and morals. Well, the other side is saying, it hurts my children. I need to protect. They will not have a land. They will not have a country to live. They'll be old. They'll die. It's their, their safety. So when it comes from your belly, from your emotions, it's really hard to argue with. Yeah, it, it, it's very, very difficult to argue with that. And it's, it's just reminding me of a book I'm reading at the moment called The Molecule of More by Daniel The Molecule of? More. Um, so it's the, called The Molecule of More by this, um, this two scientists, Daniel Leipzig or something like that. And um, it's about dopamine and the role of dopamine in addiction, the role of dopamine in love, the role of dopamine in politics. Um, and what you're describing there, the emotionality of the right hand side of the right wing versus the left wing is that what they are theorizing and there's been studies on it. The studies are not as they're not as accurate or flawless as, as you'd like them to be, but they trend to show 
that people on the right wing are more, they have high levels of what they call the here and now chemicals, which is oxytocin, uh, serotonin, and vasopressin, which are the more feeling, pleasurable, comfortable, right now emotions, um, right now molecules which, which stimulate our emotions right now. And so right-wing people have higher levels of those molecules in them. So they tend towards uh, tradition, stability, emotion, family, connections, those type of things, the, the traditional right-wing values, whereas the left-wing liberal people, they are high dopamine people. So they're constantly wanting change. They're constantly wanting progression. They're constantly, they're not so focused on the emotions of right now. They're focused on the future. Um, so they're constantly trying to move forwards. And they, he uses the, the analogy of the left wing being like a straight line and the conservative or the right wing being like a circle that's, con that's continuously, you know, it's just going round and round and round like that. And neither of those is necessarily the right way to be because you don't want to be 100% focusing on the future and you don't want to be 100% focusing on now, which is why you need the balance of the center. Um, it's fascinating. It's really fascinating. And I'm loving it at the moment, just thinking about that because it, it, it makes total sense. But it's like what he's saying is that left-wing people on the whole, it was, say, it was saying that left-wing people tend to, left-wing and liberal people tend to be smarter on the whole, but less happy because they're troubled with the problems of the future troubling with the trouble with the problems sure. of the future and they're yeah. never satisfied yeah. with anything yeah that's um, why they want the change it's why they drive the change that's exactly that's what drives the change but constantly searching for change is um not being satisfied with not the being moment, satisfied with the moment. Being happy, yeah. and i like reading with reading through the book i identify a lot with the high dopamine people that are constantly looking for the next thing constantly looking to move to grow to build to, to change to modify and I know that I personally struggle with enjoying the present moment and I like I put a lot of effort now into trying to do things just for the sake of doing it just to enjoy it and to take a moment there because from everything that I've read and people I've spoken to and a podcast I did with this um, lady who's a, a psychologist for the music industry people that are high performing or end up you know pushing forwards in creative careers a lot of them end up with mental health problems because they're not satisfied with what they're doing now, they're always pushing forward. And she said, if you want to be satisfied, like practice enjoying the moment. So I'm like, I'm like yeah, but really... I think this not being satisfied with the with the moment at any given moment is the prerequisite of the change and of progress. Hundred percent. If you're you... satisfied, why move? Why change? Why do anything? No. But there, of course. But then there has to again be the balance. Of course. Because it's like you can want to be moved forward. But then take five minutes to be satisfied with today. With a stopper, though. With and then and with what? With a stopper. Yeah. Make sure it's five minutes. Yeah, yeah, five minutes exactly. Exactly. Um, is it yet? Like, oh, okay, I need I'm, to go. I need yeah, to go. Yeah, I'm really satisfied with how this is going. <laughs> and like, you know, it's, it's even even things like um, when you receive a like, uh, say for example, you get a bonus at work or a promotion. Um, don't enjoy that promotion for too long. Because that will then make you rest on your laurels and yeah. not want to progress. But don't not enjoy it and just go straight onto something else. Enjoy it for a small amount of time. You know, maybe go for a, a meal with your friend or something and then celebrate that for an hour and then move on. Yeah. It's like these little tiny, tiny little tricks. Take a moment tricks. to enjoy it. Take yeah. a moment to enjoy it. Um, but just, yeah. And now I'm just, my mind is 
thinking about this just dopamine, like boom, boom, boom. And just the simple differences between you have more dopamine, therefore you are more likely to go on this side and you have more um, of the here and now chemicals, serotonin, um, oxytocin and vasopressin, and you are more likely to go on this side because these chemicals are driving. You're happy now. You want to keep it as now. it is. You want to keep it as it is. Um, what if change is bad? What if you're not happy there? So, yeah, makes sense. But it's also then it's strange because um, the right wing people are you, you're generally not you're not going to be happy with the present if you're poor and in a shit situation. Generally. But what if it changes and you are in a worse situation somehow? Well, true. Because somehow poor people do tend, I, I, from my experience and feelings, they do tend to vote right wing more. Oh, really? Because it's not like that in England. It's different in Israel and England, I guess. Yeah. And because in, in, in England, it's like the right wing party is considered to be the party for the rich people, and the left wing party is considered to be the party for the poor people. In Israel, like, the that's opposite. Because in Israel, also right wing is religious people. Ah. Uh, and that's a bit different. It, this study also said that the re- religious people on the whole are less intelligent, which... Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. They, well, this book, and they, they pulled it on, um, which I thought was interesting. You know, it's interesting, a bit controversial, because I believe it's true today. But before, it was the opposite, I think, exactly. sir. Exactly. Because in Judaism, for example, there was... You were not allowed to work the land, so the children would learn Torah from their very young age, and they would develop very fast into intellectual professions. So they were religious, and through religion, they worked more on literacy, and uh, they developed also in when it was early ages in Khalifat. Mm. They were the, prog- the most progressive in sciences, right? Yeah, that's that's... It's always been like that, you know, from right from the beginning of time, the religious people have been the one recording things and the monks are the only ones that can write and all these different things. And How it, did it change suddenly into the more religious you are, the more dark age and illiterate, uneducated and uh, basically torpedoing the progress? Yeah, I think I think it has to come down a little bit to partly to brainwashing, partly to also, I suppose it could be a sense of if you have this real, let's say, for example, you're really religious and you 100% believe you're protected all the time and you're going to go to heaven and all these things, you truly believe that, again, you have no desire for change. You have, because you're, you're taught to be satisfied exactly with what you have now, you know, and that's, but then... True, but then how it was driving sciences in the Middle Ages... I don't know, because I think that then it drove science, but then the scientists had to break away, didn't they? And then you had like... Um, in uh, It was in Christianity with Galileo and all of yeah, that. Yeah, with Galileo. But I'm thinking of Caliphate. Oh, okay. I don't in the beginning, that. I think that they were the ones to, to discover all the first sciences, mathematics, geometry, all of that. Mm. And then something happened to religions that instead of facilitating progress, they started facilitating uh, ignorance. I also have um, a theory, and I've had this theory for a while, and then I read something that, like, because basically I like to have theories and not read about them, and then one day something will happen. I'll be like, oh, that's an actual theory that people have thought of. And so, like, I've had this theory that different cultures have developed because of the 
local, like the, the, the native and the local, um, how do you call it, uh, like pharmacological plants that are near them. So, for example, if you live in a coffee region and you have coffee growing, your culture will develop in a certain way due to increased use of coffee. If you are in a place where there is a lot of ayahuasca, ayahuasca you'll develop in a certain way. You know, if you're in a place where there's mushrooms growing everywhere or opium is growing everywhere or um, cannabis is growing everywhere, then you'll develop in a certain way. And then because I was thinking about it in terms of the UK, because the UK, you can grow cannabis there, but I don't think that it grows naturally. I mean, it doesn't grow naturally. Um, but I was talking only about drugs. We're talking about things that, that, that change your brain chemistry. Okay. So it could be anything from tea, coffee, cigarettes, tobacco. Okay. Uh, any of those, psychoactive is the word I was looking for, psychoactive plants. But the UK, it doesn't have cannabis. It doesn't have tea na native to it. It doesn't have coffee. It doesn't have any of those. They're all imported. But then I was reading about how... Um, mathematics was like it's thought the mathematics like what we understand as modern mathematics was created in um, Arabic speaking countries in the Arabic coffee coffee regions and one of the theories is that the increased use of coffee like coffee obviously it it, um, it increases the uh, the availability of dopamine in your blood um, like the, the availability to pick up on dopamine and it allows you to focus on things and it increases your ability for tasks like mathematics and that's one of the theories that that's, that's why it developed in that region and then other places as it started getting exported um, then other regions started picking up on it as well uh, and then obviously the UK ends up getting tea and coffee and everything and cocaine um, <laughs> and cocaine and, and cocaine, tea and coffee and Interesting. Um, so then I'm like, ooh, when I'm thinking about when I go different places and I try and think of like, what is their local, what's their local poison, you know? And people have been brewing alcohol, for example, all over the world. But then the Arabic-speaking countries avoided alcohol and they went on to things like um, tobacco and coffee. So they were very focused and they developed amazing systems of writing. They developed amazing systems of um, of mathematics very early on. Yeah, but the then they stopped. But then they stopped, and that's the thing. Why did why? they stop? Um, and I don't know why they stopped. But then everybody else, maybe they just started exporting it, like exporting their um Maybe their then knowledge. they discovered some other drugs. Maybe, yeah. Maybe they got bored of those ones. Or they were just... Or they had a head start because of those drugs, and then it, like, reached a plateau... And then, then they other... said, oh, we were, not, we're not interested in competing in this. Like, we, we did our part. Bye. Yeah, we already did. <laughs> we yes. sign off. We um, sign out. But one thing I thought was quite, um, made me feel quite sad was that in religious, in, in Judaism, women aren't allowed to learn Hebrew. What do you mean? Well, I thought that women, like, in, in, they're not allowed to learn Hebrew and they have to, they have to sit behind what the... They should, what, what are they learning then? What are they speaking, in your opinion? I Hebrew is the language in Israel. What I thought is Ivrit's a part of Hebrew. Like the, I'm, I'm talking about like traditional Hebrew for the Torah. They're not allowed to like 
learn Torah script? Because I've heard a few people that have told me that. No, I'm first of all, let's be sure. Hebrew is the official language in Israel. Okay. It's Hebrew and Arabic, and Hebrew is the official one of the official languages, so it's spoken by all, except for a few movements of ultra-Orthodox who speak Yiddish, which they claim to be the genuine language for Jews, which can be more hilarious and untrue, since Yiddish is the language that is a mixture between Hebrew and uh, Russian-Ukrainian, Polish-German, mm -hmm. invented by European Jews so that they won't be understood by the surrounding, right? Well, Hebrew is the ancient language in which the Torah was written. So I don't know about women studying Torah because I'm very far from religious. Mm -hmm. I do my Shabbat and I love Passover, which is coming now, by the way. How is that? In a week. It's actually my favorite, favorite holiday. It's absolutely fantastic. Does it coincide with Easter for us? It's more or less the same time, yes. Okay. And what do you do for Passover? Uh, you don't eat yeast, which means that you can drink beer, eat pasta, and all of this. You have to clean your house completely out of this hmm. and just eat all the other things because it signifies the time when Jews exodit. Ex ex Exodus isn't a verb, is it? No. <laughs> I tried to make it a verb. Exodusid. Ex exodicized. Uh, left About Egypt. Left. left. <laughs> with Moses and it's traveled for a while in um, in the desert mm. where they didn't have yeast so you're supposed to yeah but I I like the spiritual meaning of this holiday which means you need to identify because the, uh, the spiritual meaning of this holiday is just as the Jews left slavery in Egypt in order to become free in Israel and mm. they spent this 40 years in the uh, in the desert. So this is the time of this week where you have to identify what are the factors, the people or the thoughts or the desires or your habits or anything that enslaves you and keeps mm. you from reaching your goals, from going where you want to go. And you have to set yourself free of those people, things, ideas, habits, perceptions, so that you can be free in the next year, you can set yourself free of this enslaving factors. I love this meaning of the holiday. That is awesome. So, wait, this has already started, the 40 days? It's 10 days. We don't do oh, 40, 40 or even one week. You know, it starts next week. I think it's on the 6th of April. 6th of April. And I really love because it's also after the winter, right? So mm -hmm. this is the time you can really take it for to shed your un, unuseful beliefs habits, people. You can really do this. I love to take this this time for a lot of uh, soul searching. I don't know how you call it exactly. What's mm -hmm. the proper, pro pro proper word for this? But to really go over things in your life and identify what is it you want to do, what kind of person you are and you want to be. Are you where you want to be and what keeps you back? And then you just declutter and shed those things behind you and you can enter consciously the new year the new spring, new summer, as a free person going without limiting beliefs, limiting people, and go into where you really want to reach, from slavery to freedom in every way. Wow. I love it. I'm going to do it. Thank you. Yeah, um, join. Do it.
So what do you like, what practices do you do? You write things down or is it more of just a mental process? All of it. I love writing things down. I love free writing. I love journaling. I love uh, short stories writing. I love prompts because many times you start writing a prompt that is about aliens and you end up realizing after you wrote a short story for that prompt that it was actually something that was bothering you, something you were thinking about and you solve it in a way that you would rather solve it in your life as well. So sometimes I learn about my own subconscious from my writing. So I do that. I do a lot of talking to people as long as my friends still uh, are willing to listen to me about that. <laughs> Then I return the favor. I try to make it balanced, but I find it very helpful. And uh, in, a, in a funny way, normally I'm more of a solution finder person. I'm a fixer. Mm -hmm. That's why it makes me hard. It makes it a bit harder for me to talk to girls because if a woman wants to vent, my my initial intention would be let's fix it, let's find solutions to their problems. Yeah. And my girlfriends know it, and they just cut me middle and they say, no, 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 I just want to complain. I want to talk, and you shut up and listen. I say, okay, okay, I'm here. So then I have to listen and just nod, but not find solutions, because the other thing that we do as women, normally I think it's women. While you're talking about your problems, you find the solution yourself yeah, or you already yeah, yeah. know it. You just need to talk it through. Yeah, this is something that I only learned about a year ago. And I learned it from this book called Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, which is an amazing book. I, I read, read it. it. It's oh, great, yeah. And I was just like, oh, that makes so much sense. I was very surprised about the other side. Yeah. The other side. And I was like. <laughs> This makes total sense why women just moan and they, <laughs> and they don't and they don't want a response. They just want you to listen. And when I realized that I was like, oh, this is easy. I can just let my girlfriend moan <laughs> and just say like, oh, yeah. Mm, yeah, mm, you're not expected yeah, to find solutions. Yeah, and if yeah. she wants, she will tell you. Yeah, yeah. What do you think? What will be a solution? But unless you're asked, don't. Just don't. Just basically just agree with everything. Yeah. I'm just like, oh, yeah. Mm, yeah. Oh, yeah. Good point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that sounds horrible. Oh, I'm really sorry to hear that. Um, and that's all exactly. you have to do. And I was like, oh, my God, because it used to frustrate me so much, like hearing someone moaning. And the answers are clear. Yeah. And I'm yeah. like, why are you moaning at me about something so obvious? And I'm telling the answer and then you're getting angry at me. And my, I was like, God, why have I only learned this so late in my life? Like everyone should that should be on the curriculum at school. Like just teaching you this book, like that men and women are like men and women on the whole. Obviously, there are. Um, differences between the genders and whatever, but on the whole, yeah, they they have very specific differences and they view things very differently. And I'm like, this makes life so much easier. But I now have an older brother, so I basically grew up with him and his friends, and then it was easier for me to make calls for myself, more guys friends and girlfriends. Mm. And now I have very mixed uh, mixed habits and mixed thinking. So on one hand, I'm a bit more of a guy in this. I'm I'm not a multitasker. I'm one tasker. I take one task, I do it properly till the end, then I can move to the next one. I really cannot uh, do this whole multitasking thing, which is supposed to be a female thing. Mm -hmm. I used to do this uh, with fixing instead of listening. So my girlfriend had to teach me how to be a proper woman in that. And now I'm <laughs> loving it. So yeah. I really have this gender confused uh, behaviors at time. I think it's, um, I think that it, like what you said about having the older brother, like I had two older sisters um, and then you spend a lot of time, you know, with the like the opposite sex and then i always felt way more comfortable around women when i was growing up um and even until recently so but i think it's really useful to learn that even if at first it's a bit confusing because you're kind of like almost turned the wrong way around yeah but then when you can kind of unlearn that and turn yourself back around the other way you still have the knowledge yeah, yeah of absolutely what it's like to be able to be fine 
in the company of the opposite sex and then it's almost weird like learning how to interact with your own that is very true sex. that and, like, is so it's true something i've yeah. noticed more recently like because i used to play rugby for like my whole growing up like from 11 to like 21 or whatever football and stuff before that and obviously going to school you're around loads of guys but then since i've been here for the past ages i a lot of my friends were girls and gays um and then i didn't have like a a solid male friendship group for quite a while here uh and then i i started feeling myself just kind of becoming more womanly basically because you're around loads of female energy all the time and then now i'm back playing rugby and it's like so nice to be back with some just like solid masculine energy where like they just love talking about rugby um and like work and work and rugby basically and i'm like <laughs> And like, I mean, I'm I'm not like I'm not like that obsessed with rugby. I don't really know. I like playing it, but I don't really know anything about it. But these guys just love rugby. But it's just like it's nice being there, and then just like them talking about that. And it, I don't know. It's it. I've just I, I've been thinking a lot just about you. Dip, you got to dip your toes in the different sides, you know. And if if you're a person who doesn't really hasn't spent much time with women, just go and hang out with some women for a while and get used to that. Sort of yeah, but if you energy. haven't spent much time with them, it would be hard for you just because it would yeah. be clumsy and awkward. And yeah. everything you would say would be like, what? But I also find that, like, on the whole, um, I always used to be, like, concerned about being awkward and coming across as awkward. Then I realized men are awkward. Men are really awkward. And on the whole, women are much better at hiding their awkwardness. True. So, like, it's much easier to talk to a woman because they won't make you feel awkward. Whereas two men trying to talk to each other for the first time often it's just an awkward conversation because both people are like, I don't know how to do this. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. I don't know, going on. I don't I know, don't know how on. you guys do that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what's going on. Um, so another little detour there, um, but back to the crux of the matter, Israel, Palestine. Yes. Um, what's going on? Why are people so unhappy? And why how accurate do you think that external image the external image from outside of israel is of israel and of palestine like how how close to the, the reality do you think that the perception is i think there's nothing to do with reality okay when i read israeli news and i see that there is for example uh two hamas warriors uh, run uh, through terrorists, basically, right? Mm -hmm. Run through their tunnel, go to Israel, and stab a family of six in their sleep. Okay, so explain who Hamas is quickly. For example, right? Just uh, I'll just give you an example, and then so uh, the Hamas warriors are in Gaza. They dig tunnels at times. Then Israeli army dis uh, discovers them and blows them up. Mm -hmm. But they use this those tunnel tunnels to smuggle terrorists to Israel or weapons into Gaza, right? That's normally that's how to use. So for example, when there is an incident, which is a true story, two terrorists uh, infiltrated to Israel through this tunnel, went to the nearest settlement uh, village and uh, stabbed a family of six in their sleep, including kids and a newborn baby. And they, and they were killed, of course, uh, when they were found, they were immediately killed by the army. Um, and the headlines, and all Western news is uh, two Palestinians killed by, by the Israeli army and nothing, nothing about why, why was it and what happened. I see it as there is nothing between the reality in Israel 
and how it's been represented in the Western media. Okay. Um, I'm just going to put this. Okay. And I can give you another example. Uh, when there was Gaza war, I don't know which year. So, so can, can you please explain to people first um, yes. about Hamas, who you've just mentioned, and also Gaza? Like, I'll, what, I'll leave what, the explanations what? to you. <laughs> the background. Yes, let's do that. Um, sorry, what I understand, Hamas is the... They're, they're, a, they're a Palestinian political party, but they are linked with like military action basically so they Hamas is in power I believe are they they're in power, power in Gaza they're and in they, they, their methods include uh, military yeah uh, paramilitary operations yeah ter terroristic operations so, so blowing up uh, uh, objects in Israel killing people stabbing people they believe in every possible uh, terroristic uh, way of achieving their goals yeah and so they from what I understand as well they are they're in conflict with the other Palestinian political party. They're, they're, they're almost in like a civil war within Palestine There is fatah well. in, my, in my best memory when Palestinian people in Gaza voted for Fatah as their leading organization. Hamas people took the Fatah people and just threw them off the roof, sending the message that there will be no other political party or any other ruling party other than the one leading with the fear and terrorism. Yeah. So so within within Palestine what is the like what's the public opinion of Hamas? Are they ruling with terror or are they um are they sort of respected? I have no idea. Okay. I have no way of knowing. What I do have a way of knowing is that again as we were speaking about the media, right? And uh, the example I wanted to give you was a uh, I don't remember the years, there was a, a on-the-ground operation of Israel and Gaza after the escalation and uh, many terrorist attacks. And the, um, the crew of French journalists from uh, 24 News, they were sent to Gaza for a week. And uh, there they saw that uh, they went to the hospital with their cameras and they saw that Hamas uh, terrorists, they were hiding their... Um, weapons inside the basement of the hospital because they wanted to provoke Israeli forces to blow up the hospital, which they didn't. But a, this TV crew went and made a, a, a report, which they didn't air yet. They haven't aired yet. They only re recorded it, that Hamas is indeed hiding weapons inside the hospital and they are using children as their shield so that they won't be bombed by, by Israel because they would just put children in front of themselves, really using that as human shields. And that day that they were supposed to air it for the France News, uh, the cameraman and the presenter, Emka, they had a knock on their door in their hotel. They were taken from their rooms with their paper bag on their, on their heads into some basement, and they were threatened with the pictures of their family in France that if they ever air this episode, their families will be killed. So they completely deleted all of this evidence and all of these reports. And then they started airing reports in favor of Hamas. So then when French people or European people tell me that they trust their journalists and their media is fearless and would rather die than bend their, their, their values, I know for sure and for first hand that is not true. So how did you come across this information? 
because I made friends with this crew, and I saw them before, in the middle, and after they were calling me from Gaza. They would call me, and I would hear the launch of the rockets, which would be behind their hotel, because Hamas people would come and would try to launch it near their hotel of the foreign journalists to provoke Israel to respond and to kill some of these journalists, potentially, so they could make it bigger news. Uh, there was absolutely okay. terrible situation. There was terrible time. But this story, I know at the time that it happened from the first hand. Yeah, that's they were terrified. They were absolutely terrified. But of course, it doesn't matter what their values are, how much freedom talk they want to make, how much uh, authentic they want to be. Of course, the family comes first for everybody. I don't judge them for that. No, I mean, completely not. Nobody family. can judge them, of course. Family I'm just telling, I'm just saying this as an example that people should not be as blindly trusting their media sources, even if and when they know that they are normally truthful, ideologic, and authentic, because there can be different circumstances. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, <clears throat> there's, there's two sides for every story, and that's why I've been particularly interested to talk about this because it's so easy to jump on the bandwagon. You know, you see things everywhere, free Palestine, free Palestine. Um, and I don't know, again, I don't know whether that's right or whether that's wrong or whether they need to be free or not, whatever, I don't know. That's not for me to kind of decide. But it seems like everybody jumps on that. And I'm thinking, like, when I hear people talk about it, I'm thinking, do you actually know anything, anything about what you're talking about? Probably not. Do I? No, not really. Um, and, like... You know, it's to understand what's going on. Number one, you probably need to go there, which is almost impossible. You need to spend time. You need to know. Pe you need to know people on both sides. You need to talk to people. You need to understand the politics of the countries. You need to understand the history um, to be able to give a real, solid, accurate like this is right, this is wrong. And I'm like, that's going to take months, years, of course, of research that no one is going to do. So to just jump on board and say, okay, free Palestine. It, it, it sounds it, good. It, it makes you good. feel a good it person. May, that, that's part of the thing. And it's like with all the with all the causes. And again, I want to make it extremely clear. I'm not saying I'm against free Palestine. I'm not saying, I'm not that, saying, that, saying that either. Yeah, but, I, but I'm saying like when, when you hear the, these type of like movements or buzzwords you know palestine is the buzzword and everyone is like well I i'm for palestine because that makes them seem like they're part of this like revolutionary crew of people who are like amazing and doing the right thing when in reality it's more complicated than of that of course and it's like it's kind of saying i want peace on earth and i'm i'm pro peace on earth and i'm against not peace on earth great stuff all of us are but this is so flat this is so simplified this is so simplistic and wrong mm. how about we go to the to the core of it and try to understand and help it I see it as I spent 10 years of my life working in politics for mainly left-wing uh, leaders, heads of opposition. And so I see it as I gave 10 years of my life to try to help Palestinian people, to help them have their country, to help change the laws, to help real, the real process. And when I walk around in Barcelona and I get blamed by a Pakistani shop owner that I go and kill Arabs every day, I'm sorry, but he did nothing in his life to help his own brothers while I did. I don't, I don't accept being blamed for this. Yeah. And that's part of this also hypocrisy. When, uh, when you meet a Syrian person, normally you would say, oh, it, you, your government was really bad. I'm really sorry. Come, let's comfort you. But when you see an Israeli, you assume that they are supporting 
the, the, the government line, whatever they are and whoever government is. Mm. And just say, oh, no, you're probably an asshole. Come, let me beat you up. That's yeah. a hypocrisy. Complete yeah. and absolute. It's unjust, unfair, and it keeps going on. Yeah, and it, it just exacerbates the whole, like, anti-Semitism, I suppose. It does. That, like, because obviously there are going to be some people, probably lots of people who are, like you say, pro-Netanyahu, pro-one-state um, solution, and ultimately probably pro-bombing. Um, and there's going to be some people who are like that, but there's going to be a ton of people who are not. Um, so it, it's not, I, I, I don't know, I've always felt sorry for Israelis because when you see them around, you can see that they're just being judged nonstop, basically. And you, you can hear that. And I also, I also wanted to ask you about... Um, about the uh what do you call it uh compulsory military service yeah what so about it that's something you have to do from 18 to 20 right um because i i didn't realize that was a thing and I, I found out about that when i was in south america and there's a lot of uh israelis that are in south america they seem to, they seem to love peru as well for some reason um because when they finish the army they take a year off yeah. and they go travel in south america yeah 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 it's just like the thing that people do and you get like a payout don't you afterwards or yeah. uh, and they do it but then i was like I was just thinking, like, shit, all these people have spent two years doing, like, military training at the age of 18. And, like, I heard, I can't remember who told me it, but they were saying that as part of their training, I don't know if you experienced this, but as part of their training, they were basically sent to the wall to, like, launch insults at people on the other side. Uh, and I don't it had, like, know. really messed who told up. you this? It sounds completely insults. Yeah, to basically like throw to like to like abuse the people on the other side. Why to would like, anybody do that? To like de well, it's to like I suppose it's like to like dehumanize no, the people on the other side. No, that's not something happened. Oh. No, I don't know who told you this or why. But it was an Israeli person. Yeah, so Israeli they, person would have been deluded. No, no, that would never get approved, authorized by anybody or anything. Because why would you want to escalate that? I don't know. Um, but I always thought they're also delusional, uh, crazy people, people who want to say to to, to talk uh, some crazy talk about Israel to others. I don't know why, because he wanted to feel special, or maybe he I don't know PTSD from whatever happened to him. Could be. But so, there is now a role in the army that is go insult Palestinian people. Truly, no. Um, I think the army is great. Did you I, enjoy I, it? I didn't enjoy it. I completely miss um, misplaced my army service. If I could go back, I would have made so much fun of it because you can take it. It's a great opportunity for basically your transition from being a child to being a grown-up. Mm -hmm. You learn to be accountable. You learn to have responsibility for others. For me, I, I just did really very easy service in the office. Nothing at all I was doing. I did the training. I loved running and shooting on hmm. the, you know, in the uh, training range. It was fantastic. But other than that, I was doing computers. I was in the computer rooms. I was uh, discovering intranet and early on uh, um, Linux uh, messenger, sort of. Oh. So I really did nothing, nothing important. But I remember from my side, the accountability and uh, responsibility for others came when in boot camp, you had to wake up half an hour at night. And each one had to had to uh, guard some absolutely unnecessary, redundant guarding of some door or whatever it was, mm -hmm. gate, half an hour, middle of the night. So 
That was the moment when you wake up, it's 4 a.m. or 3.30. You really want to sleep. You have zero intention or will to leave your warm-ish uh, warm bed in a warm-ish tent, but even less so to get out and half an hour sit there, wake up completely, and then try to go back to sleep. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to. You can't stay. You can then say that you overslept or something, but then you know that your friend or your co... I don't know how to say it, co-soldier, you'll screw them up. They will stay there an hour instead of half an hour because of you. Uh. So basically, you need to replace somebody else, right? And then, even if you would be okay to be punished for yourself that you did it, and you just say, I'll oversleep and then I'll get punished. But you screw up the next person. So from my side, that was the wake-up call. Sort of, you mm. can't do this anymore because now you're not coming only for yourself. You have much larger responsibility. And I think it's really important for everybody to be in this situation where you stop being just self-focused asshole, as we all are as the children, yeah. right? And you grow into this uh, adulthood. Yeah, no, I think it's like, you're right. It's accountability and discipline as well. And like, you have to do this now. Yeah. No question. And like, also in Israeli army, you can take it in a few directions. You can go and make some professional courses when you are still in high school. And then you can, account, you can acquire a profession. Mm. Then you will be doing your profession. So after three years, you come out with profession. Yeah. Uh, other than uh, some other folks will just finish high school, go to university, come out of university with professional zero experience, and they'll work in McDonald's. So this is a great professional opportunity. You can go study in university, and then you can go to the army as an officer in your profession. Again, you will finish it in a few years with experience. So you can go and mm. you can work in the markets, having much better advantage over others. Mm -hmm. You can decide that you want to be in combat. You can go, you can drive hammers in the desert. So you can take in everywhere you want. I completely misplaced mine because I just wanted to go study, but not what they allowed me, which was communications. I want to study law. And I was very minded because I'm a Soviet child, after all, ex-Soviet child. So, of course, there was no travel for a year in South America. I had to study, 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 work, 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 work. That's how the whole mentality was. So I saw it as a waste of my time. That's why I was trying to, to do this computer course and be there in computer room and to discover this because in my head, they're keeping me from my professional progress. Mm. Yeah, I think that, yeah, I, uh, compulsory, I don't know. I thought about it before, like compulsory, making people do some sort of compulsory training like that. I think as well for fitness, making for, fitness also not for, make, bad, for, yeah. make, for making people do some compulsory fitness and to learn how to like, run and stuff like that for people that don't do that naturally it, it's pretty good um so what is the the solution what's holding back the the solution for the like the the israel-palestine conflict like why is it not progressing because it's very unclear what the ultimate solution is as i said both sides i think they truly believe that each of their solutions is the right one. Mm. Just as the right wing believe we can coexist perfectly together, because there are cities with normal coexistence. Everybody is together, and you would see in the metro, we don't have metro yet. Mm. Actually, this is kind of an ongoing joke in Israel. If only we hired Hamas people to dig our metro, it would be finished much faster, because they dig their tunnels really efficient. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> But when the conflict's over, you can employ them. Exactly, because otherwise, it's been 25 years I've been digging this metro and uh, still nothing happens because every meter you dig, you come up across something from Middle Ages. 
like, oh, you cannot touch this historical artifact. Stop, stop the digging. Let's get all the uh, archaeologists and evaluate what happened here. Oh, maybe not even Middle Ages, maybe from like 4,000 years ago. Possibly. Oh. Like really, every meter they dig, they come across something. So it's impossible to dig there. <laughs> yeah. But what I want to say is when you do have a train or anything there, right, you would, you would see sitting together a woman in hijab, a man with their faces, right? Mm. And, uh, I don't know, a soldier. They would all be together in complete normal coexistence. So inside Israel, it, it exists. It's okay. It's fine. It's not apartheid state. It's coexistence, and it's fine. So within Israel, the um, people are like Palestinian people or other people um, are not discriminated? No. Not at all? I believe they feel some sort of discrimination in certain fields or okay. in certain areas. Because, again, if you would go to a very right-wing area, they might have some feelings. But mm -hmm. job-wise, opportunities-wise, university-wise, friends-wise, it's all very mixed. And do, do most... So the uh, Arab, well, Palestinian or Arab people that live in Israel, do they usually speak Hebrew or do they also... Do the Israeli people speak Arabic as well? It goes both ways. Most Israeli, not most, maybe half Israeli people, they speak Arabic as well, Jews, and all Arabs also speak Hebrew. Mm. I don't speak because I immigrated to Israel, so oh, my second language was taken already. Yeah. <laughs> my third language, yeah. Oh. Um, okay. So there's not much discrimination within there. I just want to quickly... Of course, with, there's a place for improvement everywhere. Yeah. But just saying that it's not apartheid. It's yeah, coexistence, yeah. not discriminative coexistence. Okay. Working together, living together, going to shops together, going to restaurants together. Everybody's together. Okay. Um, I just wanted, wanted to say when I was in... in <clears throat> the first time I had experience with... What's it called? The... the Baser. Um The first time I saw those people, like the Orthodox Jews, I was in... I was in Tottenham in London. I was got like it was like one o'clock in the morning, probably about midnight on a Friday, I think. Um, and I was going to like a, a New Year's Eve party or something, and we're just driving through that area. And Tottenham is like a really Jewish area. Um, and I just saw these people walking down the street, and I was like, "What the fuck?" At like midnight on a Friday, and I just <laughs> walk like loads what of them. What happens there? I was like, "What is going on here?" Because. These are people that you see in, like, to me, like I had seen in like, the movies. I was like, I didn't realize these people existed in, like, <laughs> in actual in, in England. How old were you again? 24. Okay, that's a bit late in life to realize. Yeah, yeah, exist. yeah. But I was, no, like, obviously I knew they existed, but I didn't realize they were in London. Yeah. I thought it was like those people kind of like walk around in the past or they, they exist in, like, I don't know, yeah. Israel or something. But oh, my God. I didn't realize there's whole, like, areas in London where these people walking around with things. I was like... I thought it was so cool and my sister was laughing at me because I was just like so fascinated by all these people. I was like, oh my God. She's like, yeah, Connor, we're in North London. Like there's loads of Orthodox Jew people here. And I was like, oh, right, okay. And I was like, whoa. Um, but um, yeah, sorry. That's a little... No, no, all good. <laughs> um, yeah, so then... I get mainly annoyed when I see them in Israel, to be very honest, because they, I see them as... Um, how about they learn and, and they learn Torah and they practice their beliefs in the spare time after work rather than uh, doing it properly the whole day and me paying their taxes? Oh, uh, what? Because that's their full-time job? Yes. It's like, it's just studying yeah. that. At times the woman works a bit, at times not. Having 15 children, 
not working and studying Torah, I'll be very happy to, to study Jean-Jacques Rousseau and uh, Socrates <laughs> and having, you know, 10 kids. And how about you pay my taxes? I'll be very happy about that. So that's like that. that ah, so that's, their, that's just their job. Their job is just being one of those people. Yes. Uh. Basically, after World War II, what happened is that uh, Hitler burned so many religious books. So when Israel was created, there was a need to rewrite those books. Right. So Ben-Gurion and Herzl, fine guys from my hoods in you know, Ukraine and so on, said, how about you guys, you know it by heart. Don't, you don't need to work. Rewrite those books because it's really important for the country's ethos. The problem is, like in computers, you can't create an endless loop. You need to have an exit. What if... There was no what if then starts working again. It's mm. not all of them. It's not the majority, yeah. but it's many. I've heard as well that those, they tend to be more extreme in terms of um, like sexism and homophobia and things like of that. Of course, that very much so. They, that's the conservative part, right? Because mm. I've heard in, um, for example, they... they refuse in hospitals i know someone who's who's a nurse and she said that in in hospital she said they're they're horrible to her because they don't like women and so you're not even allowed to be in the same room with a you're woman you're not supposed to look at the woman or yeah. to touch the woman and and they, and they and they can't treat you they can't you can't have a woman nurse i don't know about that um, i don't know but i just i know that they have this rule when they should not when i was doing business there i would not reach my hand out for a handshake because they can shake my hand it's very strange. Um, so we so within Israel, the people live in relative peace and harmony within yeah, Israel. Yeah. Um, so then the area that is contested is what's known as Palestine now. Um, between, the, between Jews and Arabs in Israel, it's not relative. It is peace. OK. And unless there is escalation in the borders then at times also internally it escalates. Okay. And then it creates very unpleasant conflicts because the person you're working with 20 years suddenly looks at you and say, you're insulting my brothers and might, I might harm you. This is something that is not reflecting very well inside of Israel. But then again, there has to be a solution mm -hmm. externally on the borders with the borders in order to fix things internally as well. Yeah. Okay. And so then Palestine is contested um, and within Palestine, is it at the moment, do you have, is it mainly Palestinians living there, Arab Palestinians? Yes. Um, and then are there, obviously there, there might be some, but is it almost 100% Arab Palestinians in there? And probably some European and volunteer some, tourists. Okay, but there's I no, don't know. I really don't know. I haven't been there. Can't but there's no there. Jews in there? No, not no. allowed. Ah, not allowed. Um, and so then... When was... There's a wall around Palestine, right? No, there's a wall around... Where's the wall? There are, the wall in Bethlehem. I think there are walls in a few places where have been most violent incidents. Just a few of them. Because I've seen them... The, I think it's in Bethlehem. The, the one the that Banksy... The one that Banksy, yeah. 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 Um, and so then... Within... Why are... If the Palestinians are in there now and there's no Jews in there, why is there a war going on? Why can they not just stay there? Sorry, who? The, the Palestinians who are in Palestine. No, they are staying there. There is no war or dispute about them staying there. The dispute is about them having their sovereign country for which they want half of Israel's uh, um, territory. Okay. Not even half, according to them, they just don't want it at all. 
So all the peace talks that have been until now, they are about the the borders, what they will be. Okay, because at the moment it's not an official country. It's Palestinian territory. Yeah. Um, so at the moment it is part of Israel. No. Israel provides water and electricity to them, but it's not part of Israel. So it's not the part territories of... are out now. So the territories are not part of anything. They're just like un sovereign territory. That is bizarre. Um, and so the people inside then, so they so the, the the battle then is just between how much land yes. can be divided off, and if Israel, if Palestine is not part of Israel, then why do they not? Why why is there an argument about whether it can be a sovereign country or not? Because they don't want the the existing territory that they have. They don't agree to have it just there. They want the whole thing. So if they agreed to have that part, then it could be. It could be a prosperous country by now. Okay. I blame their leaders, who instead of directing the efforts of uh, and the minds of the generations, few generations already, to how about we become prosperous, and we focus on ourselves. How about? They, they just direct all of this to Israel and to Jews, all this hatred and all of this uh, bad feelings. But there is some help, because in, in my practice, there was one uh, peace initiative mm -hmm. that was sort of informal, uh, but it was great. I liked it a lot, and uh, they hired my service for the PR. One million Palestinian people, one million Israeli people, they signed peace agreements with themselves. They wanted to make it even bigger to show that people don't want war. People want to live in peace between themselves. There is no issues between the people. The issues come from up down. Hmm. That was really beautiful, and I loved the the uh, the general who it was general from the Israeli side and a professor from Palestinian side who were leading this initiative. But unfortunately, when we re when they reached one million on each side, and we did a public relations campaign, the leaders ditched it and just went to politics. And that was the end of that peace initiative. Oh. But that what what happens to politicians. Called? People's voice. People's voice. Yeah. So it, but it, it went out public, and then the, and then the, the general and the politician, they just like left it alone. Sort of, yeah. And they went just, to politics. They, they were saying, "We'll never go to politics. We want to lead this initiative till the end. We ah. will show." <clears throat> and the first uh, opportunity they had, they went to politics. So yeah. Ah, uh, so, hmm. But that's, I wonder how many people are in Palestine. Can't be that many people. I don't know. Um, okay, so that shows that really there are, there, people want peace. People do want peace. People want because peace. Because also want... the moment there is peace, I'm now talking about the Israelis, the moment there is peace, regional peace, much more uh, significantly more budget can go to education, to culture, to sports, True. to infrastructure. Now a draconic part of budget going to, to security. Yeah, and that, I suppose, that brings me to my next sort of question. It's not a sort of question, it is a question, but the the one thing I find strange is the link between Israel and the United States and the funding that comes from the United States, but then the portrayal of Israel in the West, because it's like the US gives Israel so much money to keep doing what it's doing, um, and they have this sort of symbiotic relationship of buying weapons and selling weapons, and so probably it is for profit, you know, Israel is a massive um, purchaser of, of weapons from the US. 
And so it's like maybe it is part of that, but then it's also like selling them that and then slandering them at the same time. And it's, it's very odd. Um, so what, like what, what are your thoughts on that? I believe being part of Israeli-American relations are the American Jews. Mm, true. Unlike Europe, where Jews always felt uh, discriminated and uh, a bit of the underdog and anti-Semitism and all of that, they didn't want to stand out much because it was kind of dangerous. In state, it's not the it's not the situation. American Jews don't have all these insecurities and inferiority feelings. It's if you're a Jew in, in the states, it means that you are well connected, that you are prosperous normally, mm. and they. Uh, Probably also that means that you're influential in politics because you're you're prosperous and well connected, <coughs> and so their support of Israel translates into political decisions. But but somehow, not somehow. In my opinion, which is very poor because I'm not well uh, uh, well versed in Jewish American relations or anything connected to the states. Jews in, in Jews in states, they're either supporting Israel from the religious side because they are religious and they feel that Israel is the religious holy place mm -hmm. important to be, but they don't want to leave there. So they kind of want to donate whatever it is and support it, but they don't want to be there from religious side. Or the other side of very liberal Jews, they don't support Israel because they don't believe in its policies. Mm. So this is a bit of the division that I'm seeing. But again, I'm not too well, well versed in it. So I'm sure that my uh, vision is uh, lacking here and not sufficient. Yeah, because like, obviously there's divisions within the religion itself and within the Jewish population. But then I thought that what it seems to, from a lot of the debates and things that I've been hearing recently, is that the the focus has turned to Iran. So it's like, I I thought that maybe the United States is part of their reason for supporting Israel so much is Israel hates Iran and Iran is a big threat to everyone. So by having Israel there focusing on Iran, um, that's beneficial for everyone. Like a lot of just Iran just pops up in everything that I hear about. Everything Israeli, they're just like Iran, Iran, Iran must be yeah, stopped. Yeah, that's Netanyahu's rhetorics. Is that? Yeah. Whenever somebody brings up pensions and pension reform that is necessary, Netanyahu says, pension, what pension? Iran. Have you heard Iran? <laughs> and then you ask, how about too many kids in a classroom, education, we need more funding? Have you heard about Iran? Ah, oh, so he's just diverting the attention onto Iran. Yep. Because I find A few years, Netanyahu wasn't in power, which was just two years, but it was great. It was fantastic. There was no rhetoric about Iran. Oh. Iran just disappeared from the radar of being the main threat every day to every household in Israel. Oh, interesting. Because I find it very difficult to listen to debates because, like, with Palestinian and Israeli people debating, because the debate gets heated very quickly. People talk over each other very a lot, and it's very irritating. It's Middle East. That's um, the way people talk yeah. there. Like you're doing now. You see, you're talking. I'm talking over you. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, um, <laughs> Sorry about that. I just wanted to take okay. an example. Um, but it's... Um, then the... Uh, what I hear is that people are saying... The one side will say, but we're trying to get peace, and you won't negotiate with us. And then they're saying, no, we're trying to get peace, and you won't negotiate with us. And I'm like... And, and like that, that's the whole 
narrative is that, no, we're doing everything we can for peace and you're not. And then they say, no, we're doing everything we can for peace and you're not listening to us. And I'm like, it's like, it's almost like listening to children on the playground arguing like, well, I said this and you're not listening to me. Like, no, I said this and you're not listening to me. And I'm like, I felt like from the debates, I wasn't really learning very much. You don't learn from debates normally unless it's in high school. Well, I learned, I learned from politicians' debates. Never. No, no, no. I learned a lot from Oxford University debates. I of love course. those. Um, It's other kind of debates. Yeah, because those people don't have. They're, they're not emotionally involved. They're debating for the art of debating. And also, they want to get some with this debate, yeah, rather true. than stick to saying what they're saying, concentrate, focus on that, and not answer any other questions. But from what you were saying, um, I studied a bit of counterterrorism in uh, in my uh, university. And my teacher was one of the, my professor was one of the delegation for the Camp David the Peace Talks. And from what he told us that in that round and in every other round, the main core only reason for peace talks not to come through is that both sides don't trust each other to really want peace. Mm. So they would find whatever big or small reasons to, to drop it. But at the end of the day, neither side trusts the other to truly want peace. So they kind of don't even want to go through with it. They want to drop it at some point because they both feel that if they go through with it, they'll be screwed at some point. There'll be some sort of trap for it for them. Yeah, and that's probably true. That's probably true. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, that is probably true. Very, like, very difficult to re to reach any sort of negotiation on that scale. I um, like, I uh, there's a guy called um, Chris Voss, and he does this amazing book called Never Split the Difference and he I love this book oh, it's, it's fantastic so it's yeah. life changing yeah yeah it was I, I need to I need to go back over it again like I'm doing a little bit more negotiation now in my in my work life but at the time I read it I wasn't doing any negotiation in work so I was like it wasn't that relevant for current but anyway Chris Voss for people who don't know he's um, he was an FBI hostage negotiator um, and so he, he tells the stories of how to negotiate anything in life Um, but he's bringing it from his experience of hostage negotiation, dealing in like super high intensity and ending up like talking down these crazed terrorists in some cases or kidnappers or bank robbers. I think, yeah, those bank robbers. Um, and now he's, he's, he's like a sales coach, basically, like how to negotiate. But it just, it just reminded what you're saying there just reminded me of that because it's like, it, I wonder if, if they have top level negotiators on either side and maybe they're not getting the right negotiators in and all this stuff. But then you, maybe you have to get people who are not emotionally like maybe, maybe the Palestinian people could get like Chris Voss and then the Israelis <laughs> could get like some other guy and then they could negotiate the, the terms and then they could come back and be like, right, we're not emotionally involved in this. We've negotiated some terms where hopefully both people are happy. But I think the difficult thing is that there will have to be major, major compromise, um, which, but the one thing he does say, the reason it's called never split the difference is because he's saying that if you have to compromise, uh, then you're not happy. Both of you have to walk away happy. It has to be a win for both people. Otherwise, there's resentment and it wasn't a successful negotiation. So it's like never split the difference as in like, Yeah, don't don't just randomly split it and stuff, and then both of you be pissed off. Because if if it's a if it's a bad negotiation, both people will be unhappy. 
where you need to make it a good one. And it's going to be extremely difficult in this case when it comes to land and borders and territory. I think it will, this win-win situation will be very hard to reach in this situation, in this yeah. uh, case, because Israel comes from a different point than Palestinian people. They are, they work, they're living in territories that don't have normal life conditions. They're suffering continuously, both from their own government and from Israel when their government provokes Israel and it has to retaliate. Mm. Israel doesn't have much choice in that. It's been provoked. But on the other hand, it's also horrible, absolutely terrible for both sides. It's terrible for both sides. My heart goes to both sides suffering. And uh, I completely, not completely, I don't justify, but I understand that when the, the people, the simple people, when they have no hope, they can do every terriblest, horriblest thing. In the, I know it's not a word in English, but it serves the purpose. They are, they, are, they are capable of doing anything such as taking Caesars, as they sometimes do, go out there and stab anybody on their way because mm. they're just frustrated. There's no hope. They need to have hope. Everybody needs to have hope. It's a horrible situation. Terror is not the way. Of course it's not. Taking the Caesars, going stabbing somebody random will not solve their problems. And this is not the way to act because we only provoke Israel to retaliate more. So this is not the way. But they need, they have, they need a solution. Their yeah. kids need to have hope for their lives. Their parents need to know their children have a, will have a better life. Yeah, it's really difficult in these um, in these situations because it, it, it reminds me a lot of the conflict in Ireland. I don't know if you know anything about that. A bit. Um, because it, it's similar, basically, like the British went and took over Ireland and then they there were set like a few different civil wars over a space, a space of like 800 years where they tried to overthrow the British and then the, la the, la the territory and borders changed a little bit over time and kings changed and all this. And then eventually it ended up where uh, there was like a, a sort of war of independence um, called the Easter Rising. And that was in 1916. And it basically, it, they, the, the, a small group of people, Ireland's only 5 million people, and there's a small group within that who were like a paramilitary group, the IRA, and they managed to basically take control of some key places in Dublin for a small amount of time, like a couple of days, but it was enough to then set in motion what then ended up becoming talks to then separate Ireland into the Republic of Ireland, which had an Irish parliament, and the North of Ireland, which was part of the United Kingdom. But then after that happened, there was then fighting between the original people who had been fighting for Free Ireland because part of them said, well, no, it's not okay that we've been given 26 counties and there's six counties that are still remaining British. We want all of them. Then, then there was a civil war between the people who had just been fighting against the British. They then turned and then started fighting against each other. Um, so they would have been like killing people that they were once fighting alongside, like paramilitary fighting. And it's like, it, it reminds me a bit of that because even now, you know, there's, there's not the, the level of violence there once was. They, they, they reached an agreement in 1998, I think it was, um, the Good Friday Agreement, maybe it's 97. Um, and they, they, they agreed to basically lay down their weapons and stop fighting. And then after that, there were occasional bombings and things like that. Um, but it reminds me of that situation because it's like religiously fueled in terms of like 
if you're Protestant, you're considered to be British. If you're Catholic, you're considered to be Irish. And then these, but they're all Irish living in Ireland. And then there's, there's still distrust and there's still feelings of resentment and there's still plenty of people who are not satisfied with the outcome. Overall, the country's in peace, like, on the whole. But it's like one of those things that took them, like, basically 800 years to reach this and it's still not the solution that they originally wanted, which was the whole of the country back. But it's just, it's so complicated then because a lot of the people in the north, they wanted to remain part of Britain because that was considered to be more prosperous and they they felt that their identity was closer to that of Britain. So it's like... So yeah. we just have just 720 years more to go in Israel. Yeah, maybe, yeah. Yeah. There's Damn. hope. We see there's hope. Great exactly. stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, it might take 720 years. But then I'm saying... They could, They're going to be they, almost good. But then, wow. Well, I mean, if you consider that the conflict started thousands of years ago, then maybe you're at the end of it. That's a very good point. Thank you. Maybe. You're giving me hope. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'll take it back to my people. Yeah. Um, hey, so there is hope for, for the, uh, hey, we've for been the region. This, we've been at this for thousands of years. Let's find a hope. Do you think we'll see um, a solution within our lifetime? I have no idea. I go from uh, completely losing hope to solution going to be tomorrow to losing hope again. I don't know. Uh, I agree with you that it has to be independent, emotionally detached um, entity. Normally, my hopes go to the European community. I would see it as they could be the ones who would uh, supervise the process and then also hopefully be present in the Palestinian new state to help them build it and also to ensure peace because one of the biggest uh, fears is that they will never be satisfied with whatever land that would be and whatever borders will be and will invade again. So once they have their own proper army. So my hopes are if it's all happening with the European community supervision with the UN, I believe that can happen, and then that can be the way for them to be focused on building the country, improving it, creating it, sort of Kosovo creation, mm. right? Uh, although my Serbian friends are very upset about uh, that fact, but uh, it happened, right? <laughs> so that might be a solution, a solution as a process, how it would be, mm -hmm. as a format. But the content, I truly have no idea. Even with all the concessions given lands from Israel, I really don't know still if they would accept it. It would be enough. What would be with the mixed cities? There's so many questions in it. Yeah, I think that yeah, will we see it in our lifetime. But it's so nice to be in Catalonia where there was a, prop, a independence protest and conflict, but it wasn't my conflict. I could be emotionally detached for a change yeah. <laughs> and not feel that I need to solve something or I need to feel to one of the sides and to, you know, be broken about uh, feeling horrible for both. I would just say, I'm sorry, guys, you feel this way, but not my conflict. So, yeah, go ahead. Let's go have wine in uh, Plaza Catalonia. Yeah. Yeah, that was a crazy time when that was going on. Um, but I suppose that I, th I think that one of the hard things is that the UN 
from what I understand, part of the reason why there's not more involvement from the UN and, and Europe is because... They're anti-Semitic? Could be that. Um, <laughs> but also partly because they're, both sides are not following international law in terms of the the methods that are being used. And so it makes it difficult for other people to intervene because they can't be shown to support either side when they're not, when they're doing things which are not allowed, I suppose. And I suppose that's the com that's the complicated part. And maybe... The sentiment in Israel is that... Uh, Israeli's actions are not being uh, viewed or inspected or analyzed in an unbiased way. But then again, I know only one side. I cannot uh, say about the other side. Yeah, I mean, it does it does seem like that. But yeah, that's the, the reason it reminds me so much of like the Irish conflict is because it's like Hamas is very similar from what I understand it in terms of like is very similar in terms of what the, what the organization is in terms to the IRA. Like, but the IRA wasn't terrorizing their own people, endangering them, using them as human shields just so that uh, they would be protected. But many innocent people died through bombing. Sure, but the way, I mean, the way that Hamas is, is, uh, is working is keeping their own people in poverty and in danger, taking children, putting on their window, when there is a war, when there is a rocketing from Israel so that the window will not be blown up. So basically using them as human shield to protect themselves. I don't think Ira ever did it. This is a very different level of uh, sociopathic uh, terrorism. True. But at that time, there wasn't the same level of like military. There wasn't they they weren't having to. It was more of like a ground war. Okay. They weren't having to face like bombs coming from the sky. It was like car bombs. And, um, yeah, like things like mainly like car bombs and like rucksack bombs and stuff. There wasn't, it wasn't the same level like that okay. where it's like targeted drone attacks. Cause this is like the bulk of like the, the, the worst parts were like 60 years ago. So the technology wasn't the same. I don't know much about IRA. I was just assuming. So I don't mm. know. Um, but we've now spoken for, I think this is officially the longest podcast. Um, congratulations. Yay! Um, so before we end, we it is customary. And now you got to the point where you felt like, I can't take it anymore. Oh, I could talk for hours. Oh. I could talk for hours. But um, I think maybe we'll do a future episode. Oh, let's um, do it again. Because that would be, be great. exciting. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it's customary at the end for me to ask my guests for... Words of wisdom for, uh, I, I was originally saying words of wisdom to their former, their younger self, but then I thought, no, words of wisdom out now to everybody listening. Oh, wisdom. That's tough. It is tough. I'm not a guru. I'm not studying my sex cult or anything, you know. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe it can be a good idea. I can be that maybe. Ah, oh, words of wisdom. It will sound cliche, like really. Doesn't matter. What, live in the moment, believe in yourself? Well, if you think those are the wisest words you have to say, then that's okay. They're just cliche words. They are correct, they're true, I believe in them, but they are cliche. I don't know, something that I can take to sell, 
it, it's a bit hard for me to think something I would say to others. I don't feel that I am entitled to tell others what to do or share my wisdom. I can say what I'm telling myself these days, what I'm about with myself. Maybe That's this, fine. Okay? That's fine. So what I feel with myself in my own uh, situation, state of mind, state in life, is that it's super important to, to be very focused, to prioritize Because we do have time. We spoke about it at the beginning. Said people are busy, I'm busy. Everybody has time for everything. It's a matter of priorities. Mm -hmm. And if you prioritize properly for what are your goals at the moment, for, for what uh, is really important for you at this stage of life, then your life will look very different. Because where you put your energy, what you feed at that moment, that will, will grow. So I think that's super important. Second thing is very important that we overlook our health. And then COVID showed it or whenever, I don't know, myself, I'm a bit manly in that. Whenever I have, uh, you know, I have man flu, not woman flu. <laughs> you know what the man flu, right? Is when you sneeze and then you're like, I'm going to die. That's it. Yeah. Goodbye world. I I'm that person. So whenever I get it, <laughs> I immediately understand how important it is. We really need to take care of our health because when you're healthy, then you're strong physically, strong mentally. And then you can back up all of your decisions in life, what you want to do. And you can go full in mm. because that's what I do. And third most important is to connect to your true self. In my case, I am working in technology. I do touch on uh, different circles and different concerts in my life, but it's super important that I stay true to myself, which is connecting to art, to dancing, to music, to writing, because that's what grounds me and that's what keeps me happy, focused and alive. Yeah. Amazing. Well, this has been very fun, um, insightful. We've learned a lot. And I've loved talking to you. So thanks Thank so much for so coming. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, that was great. Oh, you're welcome. And we'll hope to see you again in the future. Um, is there anything exciting coming up in your life? Yes, I'm flying to Tel Aviv on Monday. Sarajevo? What? Do you, do I'm you... flying on Monday to Tel Aviv. Oh, I thought you said to go to Sarajevo. I'm going to see my family. I'm going to oh. see my beloved mother, father, Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, do all the great stuff, eat the amazing food in Tel Aviv, go to the mm. beach and uh, yeah. That's very exciting. Oh, that is very exciting. Well, I hope you enjoy that and um, hope to see you again soon. Thank you. So thank you, thank so you much. everybody. Farewell for now. Thank you for listening to the Quest for Wisdom podcast with your host, Connor Monaghan. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to support the show, then please like it, subscribe and leave a review on whichever platform you are using. This small act is a massive help and is hugely appreciated. You can find more information about all of our guests on thequestforwisdom.com and follow us at The Quest for Wisdom on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter for exciting updates. We also have a Patreon account for anyone who would like to contribute towards the running of the show. Finally, I would like to thank the Comedy Clubhouse in Barcelona for allowing us to record here and for their ongoing support. If you are ever in Barcelona, make sure to check it out for daily shows of comedy and performance art in English. Farewell for now.